Hello everybody, good day. Um, thank you for attending another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story podcast stream monstrosity. Uh, and one of these days I'm going to hammer down exactly what I'm going to call this thing, but I keep adding stuff. Uh, I appreciate you coming by. Um, uh, we did not have a Merged Worlds last week um, for a couple of reasons. One, I was in the hospital. <laughs> so I am currently dealing with some kidney stones. Uh, if you were here last year around this time, you'll know this is not a surprise. It happened last year as well. Um, but Buffy, stop eating chocolate bars. Those aren't for you. Um, and then uh, uh, after that, uh, Merged Worlds streams such as this will be moving to every other week from this point. Uh, now that I am writing new content. Um, I find one week is just not enough time for me to write an episode's worth of story to the caliber quality that I want to do it. So instead of rushing, I'd rather do it right. So uh, new episodes will be coming out every other Thursday, uh, today being the first of that. So there won't be one next week. There will be the one after. Uh, what's going to be happening on the off week instead is I'm going to be restarting up a video series I had in the past called Behind the Dice. Um, Behind the Dice is going to become more of a, a, a merged world spotlight. So there'll be short videos, maybe five to ten minutes long, fifteen at the very most, uh, talking about specific merged world subjects. Um, uh, easiest ones, of course, will be the characters themselves, giving you a little bit more in information about their history, the gear, the weapons they carry, the magic items, uh, stuff that we don't go into a whole lot of detail, because a lot of it's not really important for the story. And also, I may spotlight specific cities, packs of all things, come up with more maps, uh, diagrams, things that give more lore for different places and people and maybe even NPCs and such. Uh, I may dedicate episodes to specific magic items to explain how they work. So if you want to use them in your own campaign, you have a little bit more of the, the technical side of it as well as get to the lore side of it to add to the story. So um, that's going to be on the off weeks because those are pretty easy to uh, write a small script for that than it is to write the story. Uh, so keep an eye out for the first one of those next week. Uh, we'll be starting with a character spotlight. Not sure which one yet. I've narrowed it down to two. Uh, but uh, we'll have one of those out next Thursday. Those will not be released as audio podcasts. Those will be videos only uh, on the channel, YouTube channel itself. So if you're interested in seeing those, uh, just swing on over to Only Draven Gaming on YouTube and you'll find... Uh, a playlist for those specifically. Uh, Popular Eastwood says, stuff like character analysis sounds cool for me on the dice. Thank you. That's what I'm hoping. Um, there are a lot of people who are invested in this story and getting to hear a little bit more of the D&D side of it. Um, it. It gives me kind of both. Here's some of the specific technical side if you want to use a chest of holding in your adventure. At the same time, how did the chest of holding come into creation? Maybe the, I have histories uh, from all the different magic items and artifacts that I've ever created. Um, each one has a history and lore assigned to it, although many of those <clears throat> the characters have never find out. Uh, they don't need to. It's not important to their story, but it's important for me to have that background. Uh, so it'll be kind of fun to share some of those with you guys. I have a binder full of the magic items and artifacts that uh, I've created, some that are in the story and some that we may see in the future. So um, uh, I'm excited to talk about those. Um, but today we're going to jump back into where we left off. Uh, quick uh, catch up from where we were last week, and we'll be running right on, on the tail of where that ended. In our last episode, uh, the 
children of our heroes were on their first little solo adventure. Uh, they accompanied Prince Deacon back to the Kingdom of Firemoon to attend his little brother's first birthday. His brother's name, if I remember correctly, was Christopher. Um, while there, they had <clears throat> some fun, got to visit some cool places, special things going on at the temple. And in the evenings, they got to hang out in the city where there was you know, festivities going on and such. Uh, most of the children were at this point raging between 12 and 16, 11 and 16. So, uh, again, it seems young to us, but in a medieval context, it really is not. Um, especially 15, 16. I like to point out uh, that nowadays, someone who's 15 or 16 is looked at as a child who can't even drive a car. Uh, yet I live in the United States where most of the early settlers farmers getting married with children were that same age when they got started. It's an odd odd way the world changed like that. Um, but kind of in this, in this uh, historical area, it, it makes a bit more sense uh, for people younger to be involved in things like that. So while they were there, uh, Seraph came across a young woman named Dina, human woman who was selling flowers, uh, lived with her grandparents. Sadly, her father had died when she was younger, and her mother had died uh, really within the last year or so um, in illness. Uh, she lived with her, with her uncle, who was a mercenary, and her grandparents. Her grandfather was a cobbler, uh, leather worker, and her grandmother was an herbalist, so she was learning some of that stuff. Uh, her and Seraph hit it off, uh, made plans to meet, did so, hung out, spent time together. Meant to do that again, but unfortunately, she and several other young women had been captured by a group of thieves who were attempting to flee the city. Um, there was a thieves' war, guild war going on, and these ones decided it was better to get out than to get dead. And they'd made arrangements with a duke, which we'll address in a moment, one of the dukes uh, outside of Firemoon, to sell them young lasses that they would take with them by the, the hopes being with the festival and all that stuff going on by the time people noticed someone had gone missing they would already be out of this out of the kingdom um, seraph and friends pursued battle engaged during this battle there were injuries there was fighting uh, but most importantly Maeve uh, in a moment of great weakness and injury herself uh, was given a vision by her god that her path was different than where she thought it was. And when she came out of that vision, she was, uh, I want to say, I want to say enraged or inspelled, but she's definitely motivated uh, and did some serious damage, uh, which has set her from her path originally as a cleric. Instead, um, Maeve will be moving down the path to becoming a paladin, um, which is what Maeve was always intended to be. Um, when she was rolled as a character, she was rolled as a paladin. So when I started the story, the, you know, I, I kind of knew how I was going to get her there. The character, the players, didn't. So they were always excited to see, because when I said, hey, she's a cleric, they're like, well, I rolled her as a paladin. Cool, how's that going to happen? Uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a great way to start a, a story or a lore segment right for her early on. Uh, because I'm really excited about Maeve uh, and what she opens up for me as a DM. Because I don't have, never, I've never DM'd a paladin, oddly enough. Never had anyone play a paladin. I've had NPCs that are paladins. No one's ever played a paladin. So I get to use some of those skills and abilities a little bit differently now. Um, they managed to save the girls, kill most of the thieves, uh, the leader, and a few got away. 
They manage to escape, uh, get out there. Rafe, of course, is summoned by the city guard. Uh, Thickaway and Smallsius <laughs> jump down a, one of the, the sewer holes to uh, start early on cleaning them up while Tabork is gathering guards and such to start making a sweep of the sewers. Um, I can tell you that Thickaway and Smallsius have no intention of bringing anybody back up with them. They view... Um, Really, they view Deacon as a son of theirs. Rafe is their best friend. and Yes, sweetie. Best friend ever. Uh, and, like, she's a, he's a son of theirs as well. So, he, um... They're not happy about that. <laughs> so, they they may get some information before they're done, but they have no intention of bringing anyone back. Tabork, on the other hand, uh, more in charge of security, a little bit different. Uh, his goals may not completely line up. No... You stop. Sorry, I've got a kitty who's being a butt today. Um, so, Seraph escorts Dina home. Uh, grandparents very happy to hear she's alive. Very upset to hear what happened, of course. Um, and then, kind of, he made it back to the castle. And that's kind of where we left off. Uh, so, we're going to jump in right from there. Hopefully, you guys will enjoy where this goes and enjoy where it was. All right, so we're going to finish up really in that same evening. So that evening, of course, after Seraph returns, all the other children are already back there. Rafe is back there as well while he's dealing with, you know, seeing, you know, make sure everything's done. Tabork has taken the, the reins on uh, cleaning out the sewers, something Rafe and them had always wanted to do. But, you know, cleaning out a thieves' guild is not easy. It's a challenge. They're, they're not all just sitting in one place. Um... But there may come a time where you have to do a real crackdown. This was this is it. So it's not so much as a here's the excuse they were waiting for. Uh, this was really the motivation they needed to do it. Um, so Rafe is back, of course. Uh, Michelle, his wife and Deacon's mother, slightly distraught over what had happened because her son almost died again for the second time in the two weeks. <laughs> so all the kids back there. As soon as they're back. Rafe immediately uses uh, the magic orb he has to communicate with Mercy to let her know what happened, just as she let him know as soon as she could. Um, it's one of those things she deserves to know, and it's like, God, you know, I trusted you with my kid, but I let you send him back, and now you sent your kids, and the same thing happened over here. Uh, it's like, that's a lot of trust in each other's hands. Um, but he contacts her. He says, I'm going to contact your mother, let her know what's going on. She'll make sure she tells all of your parents, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, the children themselves, uh, of course, after, you know, they're checked five and ten times to make sure nobody's hurt, they're healed up and so on, are taken back to their rooms to sleep. Deacon uh, is allowed to, to spend some time with them as well before they crash out. Um, and so they're kind of all hanging out in the girls' common area like they had previously. It's kind of chatting about the night's event. Um, this is the first time that Maeve has the opportunity to explain what happened to her. You know, like the the vision, the the feeling of finding what she was really looking for. The immediately she has some new basic paladin abilities by taking that path. I mean, she's not. It's not so much as hey, I've chosen to be a paladin. It's more of a hey, I've been chosen to be a paladin. You know, 
that my god that I follow has given me these abilities. And whether I want to use them or not, up to me, but I didn't ask for them. I didn't decide to have them. They're just mine now, and I have to learn to control them, and over time, as I learn, I will gain more abilities, much like wizards and so on and so forth. Uh, but she tells the story of her vision, which, of course, blows the kids away, and like you know, and especially artists, right, who also worship Zorn. But what she did decide to do is she decided not to tell the part about artists. Um, once everything had calmed down and they were out of the sewers, and she, you know, she had a little bit of time to think about that. Zorn never told her whether he was she was supposed to say that artists or not. You know, he said, artists will be my voice in the thing that comes ahead, and you will be my fist. But he never really said, hey, and let her know that. You know? Um, if that's important, she would assume, hey, maybe she's going to get her own vision when the time is right, and it's not my place to give that out. I'm not lying. I'm still worshipping the God of Truth. I mean, this isn't a lie. It's going to be a little bit harder for me moving forward, especially if they try to be sneaky sometimes. She's a mentor. It's going to be hard for her to be sneaky anyways, really, when you think about it. Um... But it's one of those things where she's like, I don't feel it's my place to tell artists what a god has chosen for her. I may have been given a glimpse of that, that hint of what her, 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 her future may be, but that's not my place. That vision was to tell me, here's my place, here's what I need from you, Maeve. Uh, and so he, she leaves that part out of the story. Uh, she leaves out, you'll, she'll be my voice, just leaves out, you will, in the times up ahead, you will be my fist, and so on and so forth. Um, and Artis is excited for that. In no way is she jealous. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where she was Maeve's best friend. So while they worshipped, she would have been aware of Maeve's questions and uncertainty of the path. Something that Artis doesn't have. I mean, she's wholeheartedly, yeah, I'm a cleric. This is what I want out of life. Um, she, she would know her friend had more questions about that. So to see that her friend is finally given a path that will make her happy and feel whole... It's also a path that's going to run linear with her own. We're still worshipping the same God. We still want the same things to happen. We've just got slightly different tools in our toolbox now. But this doesn't have to change our relationship. This doesn't have to change our futures. We're still worshippers, whether, whether you want to call them a cleric or pellet or not. We still worship the same God with the same ideals. Um, so for her, she didn't lose anything. She just she gained her friend's happiness. So at this point, Artis has no jealousy or anything of that nature. She legitimately is happy for me. Um, so, while they're all sitting there, kind of chit and chat and so on is going on, not everybody's in the conversation. Uh, starts, Seraph ends up arriving a little bit later because he went to take walk Dina home. Uh, so he gets back a little bit after. They've already had some chatting. Um, but while they're chatting, and as Seraph is returning to the room, Deacon and some of the other uh, children are, are talking about how well they worked together. How they definitely wasn't perfect. You know, they got caught, and some of them got knocked out and slapped around and such. But when push came to shove, they instinctually worked well together. These are much like our parents have in the past. You know, our parents, you know, really complement each other and know each other's strengths and weaknesses and have been able to use those to do great things. Um, and even though what we did may seem very small, I kind of felt like we, we were in the same thing. And the other kids like, yeah, I felt that too. In that moment, you know, I was watching your back, you were watching mine. Um, it's the second time they felt that in two weeks when they were fighting the undead in Serenity. It was the same thing. You know, Deacon and Seraph in the front lines fighting. 
while the girls were in the back using their spells and assisting, much as your your squishies would in in a, in a D and D style thing. Um, just the compliment of how we ha- we know our roles and such, and Maeve's role may have just changed. Now she'll be stepping up front with Seraph and Deacon, but that seems more fitting. She's about the same. She's about the same height as Seraph at this point. She's taller than Deacon, and for physical strength, she's definitely more powerful than Deacon. So when she gets a little training under her belt, she will very likely become a pretty heavy tank. Um, with Seraph, I mean, mostly it's going to be Seraph and, and uh, Maeve, who you'd see as your frontline warriors. That's the Darsh and Mercy of the group. Um, whereas uh, you look at someone like Deacon, who now gets to step back a bit, he's the dandy, right? He can be back shooting spells instead of throwing daggers, but he can be back or he can be in melee. He's that kind of in-between to help protect the squishies behind, which is pedal and artists. So it really, really worked out well the, the way this, this is kind of lined up. With Ran, who is a mixture of everything. He's your partial rogue. He's got your sneaky stuff, your spite, your scout. He's also going to be combat when he needs to, step back, defend when he needs to. He's kind of your all-purpose. He can walk across all three lines. Um, so it, it, it's a well group. Ashley says, I really want her to headbutt someone. Well, we'll see. That is, that's a minotaur ability. Darsh has done it. He's done it several times. Because Minotaurs don't just have a headbutt ability. They have the ability to gore with their horns. Historically, uh, the horns of a female Minotaur are smaller than a male. She can still do that. The gore attack, Minotaurs technically, at least in second edition, had a bite attack and they have a claw attack. You know, it's like getting bit by a horse or a cow. That hurts. <laughs> um... I got a lot of strength in them jaws. <laughs> but, you know, that's one of those things. So there's a conversation about how well they work together. Um, Pedal and Artis, in their conversation, um, it's like, we did, but we, you know, we didn't feel like we were able to do as much. We really need to get, str- we need to get stronger. You know, if we're going to have that role in this group, if one day we might be out there doing things like our... Because they're viewing themselves that way. They're not viewing, a, hey, I'm going to sit at home and be a princess, right? Or I'm going to sit at home and run my parents' magic store. It's one day I'm going to be out doing great things like my parents. And when that happens, I want to make sure I'm pulling my weight. The one person who's kind of quiet and staying to himself is Ran. who's kind of sitting over the window, kind of on a little couch by himself while everyone is is kind of chatting. And Rand, Seraph comes in and you know, tells everybody, hey, I got Dina home. And they're like, well, that's good. She's okay. Yeah, she seems fine. You know, she was all healed up and such. She's back home now. And it, while the conversation's going on, he's kind of more listening. And he sees Ran, and he goes over and he sits down next to Ran. And, um, he mentioned, and you can see that Ran's very unhappy. He looks very upset. And, you know, he, he wants to support his friend. He's like, hey, you know, you did well tonight. And, uh, Rand just kind of looks at him for a second. He's like, I, I did not. I was unable to protect the princess. Um, and Sarah's like, you know, that I understand that's important to you, but you also, as a group, you were part of this group. We saved people. The princess is alive. The end result is what we needed. You helped in that situation. He's like, I was taken down. He was, he's like, I, well, I appreciate your words. I was taken down quickly. Um, and had it not been for you um, and Maeve in this situation, really, and Deacon, um, she would have been taken to, and maybe never, we may have never found her again. 
Um, he's like, I can't all, he's like, he's like, he's like, you, and he says to him, he's like, you're, you're an incredibly strong person. You're fast, you're strong, you're loyal, and I know you will always help. He goes, but at the same time, I can't always assume you're going to be there. And he's like, had you not been, I would have failed today, which means I failed today. And he's like, I can't let that happen again. And just kind of go back to looking out the window and Seraph's like, sighs a bit. She's like, I understand where you're coming from, but obviously I'm not going to cheer you up. Just kind of slides back to the other kids. Um, but eventually Deacon's mom shows up and says, hey, Deacon, I'd like you to spend a little time with us before bed. And the kids start to rest. They're, you know, they were already fed dinner. It was late when all this happened. Um, everybody kind of starts heading to bed because they're a little worn out. Even healing doesn't necessarily take out the fact that you're tired. Uh, especially mentally exhaustion. You know what I mean? A healing spell will perk you right up again, but you've been awake three days, you are still going to feel tired. If you went through some serious emotional stuff, you're still going to feel drained. Um, and that's how they all feel at this point. Some positively and some negatively. Ran, obviously, negatively. You know, Maeve and Seraph, overwhelmingly positive. Seraph's like, wow, Dina. I'm, you know, I'm glad we got to save her, so on and so forth. Maeve, like, I have a life goal now. I mean, there's everybody has their own stuff. So as the children finally head to bed and go to sleep, uh, each of their minds replays over the day's events and uh, how they've been affected by them. You know, because they all have to kind of start thinking about their future. Everybody gets a relatively good night's sleep. And the next morning when they wake up, of course, they um, are all summoned to come down and have breakfast, which they do every morning uh, with the king and queen. And usually one or two of the ambassadors will be there. And in this situation... Uh, Taboric is the only one there. Um, uh, they begin eating. Rafe's a little late, but he comes in with Taboric, and they kind of sit down um, and starts telling him. He's like, okay, everybody, I, I spoke with Queen Mercy and told her what's happened. Um, and at this point, we think it's, I, I feel it's for the best that you children return home. And they all get like, oh, upset look, especially Seraph. And he's like, now understand, you've all done nothing wrong. Nothing. In fact, your actions over the last 24 hours were heroic and resulted in saving the lives of my citizens. So for that, I will always thank you. But for the next at least few weeks, this kingdom is going to be on a bit of a lockdown. Uh, any celebrations have come to an end. Uh, we're going to be stamping out this Thieves' Guild problem immediately. And while I am using all of my resources to do that, I can't guarantee it's going to be safe for you all here. And, you know, to be honest, I, I really can't afford to waste a whole lot of resources protecting you when I could be using those to protect just folks. So you've never done anything wrong. You all have an open invitation to come back anytime you want. You've been a delight. But because of the events, we do feel it's best that you guys return home. So after you guys eat and have you pack up your stuff, Taboric is going to escort you and, of course, Flynn, who's there. Who Flynn heard everything from the night before. Uh, he, all the kids had told him what had happened. After he told them, he's thanked them for being hey, glad to see they're okay, and then he left. And he walked into his room and proceeded to hit his head against the wall for ten minutes. Like, oh 
my God, she's going to kill me. But at the same time, he was told to stay out of their way. So he's like, is she going to kill me for that? Is she going to kill me if I hadn't done that? All he knows is somehow he's going to get uh, physically beat up by Mercy is his thoughts at this point. Not really, but more anything else, he feels like he let her down. And so now he, he you can imagine him talking to Rafe goes, yeah, I think it'd probably be best we take the kids home at this point. I can, you know, we can at home, they're protected from, you know, it's been a week now. Hopefully the undead stuff's cleaned up. They all have problems. Um, so they're going to be heading home. Tabarak will be leaving for the Realm Gate in just a few hours. So, again, sure the men have done anything wrong. They all have the ability to return. They're all sad, but they also understand. You know, uh, he, he doesn't say a whole lot. He said, but he does imply that th- his forces have been working throughout the night, uh, and are very. I've <laughs> already seen some results. Um, so, of all of them, the most upset, as you can imagine, is Sarah. Um, for a multitude of reasons. First of all, Deacon's not going home with them. Deacon stays here for a month. It's his month at home. They're going to want him at home for a month. Especially, he almost died twice in the last two weeks. They're going to want to spend a few weeks with him. His in- the intention is still for him to return back in three weeks, to go back to school in the semester, or however made school works, <laughs> to head back and such. But, uh, you know, he has to leave his friend earlier than he'd planned. They were supposed to be here for like, almost two weeks. They've been here like five days. Uh, second of all, of course, and the big one is Dina. So after, you know, everybody's had their said and they've, they're eating and so on and everybody's a little quiet and uh, they all get up to go start packing their stuff, he goes to Rafe and he's like, um, ask permission to go and speak with Dina. And Rafe is like, Dina, the young lady that you escorted home, if I remember, that was her. And he's, uh, yes, uh, if you don't mind. And he goes, uh, you know, I, I, before I leave, I'd, I'd like to let her know we're leaving and, you know, make sure that she's okay after everything that happened last night. Um, and Rafe's like, of course, I, I, that, that makes sense. Uh, we've, we've got time for that. You know, you don't have to leave this very second, of course, if you'd like to go down and check on her. Uh, I think that's quite commendable, yes. And he asks him, would you like an escort? You know, he doesn't mean that out of any disrespect, but after everything that happened, would you like me to send some guards with you? Um, and Seraph's face just goes real serious, and he goes, you know, while I appreciate that, I won't need them. Not today. <laughs> and he's like, fair enough. Okay. Um, he, he goes, he goes, not, he goes, he goes, uh, he goes, he, I believe, how do I get right here? I'm sorry. He says, uh, he, he, he looks at him with a very serious look and tells the king that there's no need um, that on that on this day, there's not a force in the world that would keep him away. Sarah and Rafe says, "Okay," and he leaves. And as, as he Rafe is sitting there watching Seraph walk away, in his head, all he can think is, "I can't help but believe him." Like he says, "I goes, I really after seeing how serious it was, I can't help but believe there isn't a force that would keep him away at this point." So Seraph makes his way quickly down throughout the city. Now, when I say quickly, I don't mean at full speed. Because if Seraph was moving at full speed, it would probably freak people out, you know? Um, while he's not the Flash, for, per se, uh, Draven and him are fast, not quite that fast. People are standing still. Um, but if he was to really book it, he would fly through. And if he hits someone, there'd be damage. Like, he has got enough momentum with his strength, uh, he'd probably go right through a door kind of thing fence that stuff so he's moving quickly but he's being conscious of the fact he's not trying to freak out the populace uh he knows he doesn't have much time 
but he doesn't want to do anything wrong either. Uh, so he makes his way down. Uh, of course, as he's going through, he passes many of the locals. Most people don't know, you know, don't recognize him. Maybe they recognize him. He's the kid with the weird white hair. Not a lot of people walk around with that snowy white long hair of his. And uh, he finally makes it to Dina's home. And of course, you know, as he should before he knocks on the door, he straightens his shirt and such, makes sure he's not, because he's just rushed through the city, make sure he looks okay and everything. And then he knocks on the door. It's several minutes before anyone answers the door, and when they do, it's a very large human. <laughs> and it's Dina's uncle. Dina's uncle is taller than he is. He's a very barbarian-looking dude. Like, he's a very big, strong guy. Um, and he's, like I said, kind of a grizzled veteran. We've talked about that. He was, a, he's, he was and is still occasionally a mercenary. Um, when he opens the door, they kind of looks at him. He looks at him. Seraph can see that he's armed. Which isn't unusual in this type of world. Um, and as he's standing there, and he's kind of, you know, in that, opens the door, and they're looking at each other, it's quite common for someone who's trained to fight to immediately size up the person in front of them. Is this a threat? And if it is a threat, how do I mo- deal with it if it begins to move forward? And so Sarah sees that. This is a large guy, but he's trained. I can see from his stance he's confident how he would do this, this, and that. And at the same time, looking at him, Sarah's like, and he's doing the same thing to me right now. And and the uncle's looking at him with the same kind of look. Like, this is what I would do if this is a problem. And I understand you're looking at me the same way. No words are said in that regard. It's just understood between the two of them. And Seraph politely asks if he could see Dina. He... Uh, says he wanted, wanted to check on her. He's, may I, may I uh, please speak with Dina? The uncle recognizes him, obviously, and says, Ah, you must be Seraph, the boy from Serenity, who helped the prince save Ardina. And uh, he's like, uh, Yes, uh, sir, sire. I mean, he's one of those things where you, you never know how to... Pre- how, what, are you a sire? Are you my lord? Uh, so he said, Yes, sire. You know, or, or sir, sire, kind of like a combo. Uh, yes, sir, I wanted to check on her and make sure that it, uh, she was doing okay. I know a lot happened last night. Um, and, he, and he goes, uh, he goes, Serenity. He goes, I've, uh, goes, I've been through Serenity a couple times, a long time ago. Um, had some work almost in that area. Uh, fortunately, I didn't have to go that far. He goes, uh, but I hear good things about it. And I know it's close with Fire Moon, and it's one of our allies, or allies, so that's very cool. Um, how do you know the prince? Because that's a fair question. Here, you're some kid from the other town, and you look a bit freaky. Um, how is it that you know the prince? And he says, I'm, I live in Serenity. My mother is Artemis, the lady of the temple. And the he's like, oh. And it's kind of one of those realizations like, oh, this is not just a kid. This is a kid of someone important. You know, like and he, he says that he's like, ah, even I've heard of the Lady of the Temple, um, heard only, of course, wonderful things. So it, it's definitely an honor to have you here. And again, thank you so very much for helping save Ardina. Says she's resting after the night's events, after everything that happened. But if you'll give him a moment, he'll speak to her and see if she feels up uh, to taking a visitor. And Sarah's like, oh, yes, sir, thank you. <laughs> and the uncle just closes the door. So Sarah's standing on the step like. Okay, I'll wait then. <laughs> Not sure, you know, what do you do in these situations? And I promise I'm not modeling this after any personal experience I ever had. But, 
So there stands outside for several minutes, very uncomfortably, not knowing. And it takes, you know, a minute longer than he would think, like, okay, this isn't working. Do I knock again? What am I supposed to do? When finally the door opens and Dina steps out. And you can see the uncle kind of in the in the background, and he's kind of, you know, doesn't look mad. He's like, oh, he's, Dina's talking to the kid. And Dina and he step outside. Of course, he begins asking her all the way, like, how are you feeling? Is everything okay? Uh, just quick glance over, he can see that there are still several small scratches on her cheek and on her neck. Um, you know, small injury, but nothing major, but, you know, wants to make sure that she's okay. Um, and she says that she's doing fine, but still kind of shook up. It still seems unreal, you know, that, you know, had things gone another direction, she might not even be in the kingdom right now, you know, had, had, had Sarah friends not been there. Um, but she says she's feeling okay. She's not feeling injured or anything of that nature. Just shook up. Um, but that she's uh, agreed to heed her grandfather's request to stay at home, at least for the in, the home in the shop for the next several days. She's not going to be out selling flowers for a little while. And to be honest, with the end of the festivities and the city's not on lockdown, but you you know at night people are going to be wanting their house because there's going to be extra guards marching around looking for people to look roguey. So you know. It's probably best she stay at home and rest up a little bit anyways. Um, Sarah, of course. I'm very happy you're feeling well. And they're standing there with that awkward, I don't know what I'm supposed to say, but I want to say something. They both kind of have that feel. Um, So they're sitting there, and he nervously begins that he explaining that he has to leave in a few hours. He said it was unexpected. We were supposed to be staying a few more days, but after everything that happened, um, the king feels it's best that we return home until the city's rogue issue has been dealt with. So, unfortunately, we're leaving in just a couple of hours. And and you can tell he's not happy about it. And Dina also looks very sad and says that she's sorry to hear that. Sarah says he wishes he had more time, uh, more time there. Um, he says, I know I'm welcome back, but I, I don't know when I'll be able to come back again. Um, and again, it's that nervousness, that not sure what to say, he goes and just kind of looks at her and says, um, Though I know not when I may return, I may ask, if I can, may I call on you? You may ask kind of that typical, may I call on you? Which is like, hey, can I come ask you out for dinner or whatever the case may be? Hey, Nathan. Um, Dina kind of gets a little bit of a smile and she very shyly says, yes, she would like that very much. And it's about that time that Dina's uncle steps out and asks her to come back inside that she needs a rest. And she does look a little pale. I mean, again, it was a lot, you know. And it's still relatively early morning. They probably didn't get but, you know, five or six hours sleep, so with all that being shook up and such. Um, So, of course, both Dina and Seraph have their awkward goodbye, and, you know, uh, Seraph wishes her well, hope she gets lots of rest. Um, And then just, you know, she's like, okay, and she steps back in, and they both, you know, start to walk away. He starts to walk away. And you can imagine that inside of his head, he's just screaming at himself, right? You should have said this. Why didn't you say this? This is what you should have done. This is what you wanted to say. You know, that whole when you walk away from a conversation and you're already realizing, oh, I should have said this when they said that and so on. We've all been there at some point or another. And he's just inwardly berating himself. He's only about 10 or 15 feet away inwardly abusing himself when he hears his name called out. And he turns just in time to see Dina rushing right up at him. 
and he barely gets turned around before she basically runs up and just kind of jumps in his arms. Not like a you know, swoop-up thing, but, you know, like a hug kind of thing. Um, he opens his arms, of course. They kind of catch her in the embrace, and she kind of takes her hands on the side of his head, and she just gives him a big old smooch kiss right on, on the lips there. And they kiss for a moment, and it's his first time ever doing that. Not sure. Um, when she finally pulls away, you can see there's tears on her face, but he honestly can't tell if they're hers or his, because he feels wetness as well. Uh, the hint that they're not red usually helps, but they're not always when it's still him. He asks if he can write her, send letters through Deacon until he can come back again. And uh, she states that she'll eagerly uh, await his letters and be sure to return them in kind. Um, there's a little cough from the door. <clears throat> Dina! Dina! <clears throat> from her uncle. And she gives him another, again, small kiss and says that uh, uh, she'll eagerly await his letters. And then turning, she rushes back to the house and rushes inside. Sarah sees that the uncle is staring at Seraph and he doesn't look completely pleased. You can understand. <laughs> Sarah's not a regular-looking guy, right? But does have a pretty, pretty awesomely good mom, from what he's heard, right? But the uncle nods at him and then goes back inside himself, back inside of the building himself. Seraph, his heart nearly bursting, returns back to the castle to prepare for the journey home. So he gets, he has the chance to actually say goodbye, but they don't get any more time together. The children all have to pack up and leave. And he also has to say goodbye to Deacon, uh, who's his very bestest friend. Luckily, he knows he's going to get to see Deacon again in a few weeks. Um, at this point, Rafe says he'll be back in a few weeks, maybe an extra week longer than normal before he comes back. But he'll be, he will be returning uh, for, to continue his studies. Because really, he can't sit there and say, well, your kingdom's not safe for our kids. Because his kingdom wasn't safe for their kids. I'm just saying, everybody's got problems. <laughs> you know? So, that's just the world they live in. So, of course, uh, Taboric uh, escorts the ch children home with Flynn and twice as many guards as before on the way in. Uh, and it still takes, they stop at the inn again. Though this time it's not quite as celebratory. They still have a decent time. Uh, and they make their way back to the Kingdom of Serenity. Hey, Smitty, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to put together. I appreciate it. Um, so, we're going to kind of talk about what's going to happen over the next period. So, these are things that are happening over the next year. So, some time is going to go by. It's not going to be like they get home and wham, something else immediately happens. I mean, these kids are 14, 15. They've had two back-to-back world-changing events happen. Nothing before that. It may be a while before something big happens again. But the events of this trip, and both of the events of the Undead and the Fire Moon Kingdom, have kind of definitely made changes to how they're going to live their life moving forward. Um, so again, over the next year, multiple changes and, and events happen. Um, Keeping his promise, Seraph always uh, makes a point of sending letters home with Deacon, uh, usually more than one. Like, he'll write one every so often and send the stack home, and uh, Deacon returns with several letters from Dina as well. So over the next year, that's going on. Even over a great distance, um, the two of them continue to grow closer. They learn more about each other, find out what's going on, so on and so forth, how you've been doing, that kind of stuff. And the events of the trip had affected all the other children as well, but of course none as much as Maeve. Uh, almost immediately after returning to Serenity, 
she began training under Weston, who of course is the paladin who chills in the uh, temple, uh, and he has accepted her as his squire. So he doesn't have like a bunch of paladins he trains. There may be other paladins that come in and out, but he's never done that. He's never taken a squire. Um, and so this is a big deal for him. Of course, we got a glimpse as to why um, in the previous episode from the vision he received as well. Um, but he's taking her on as an apprentice uh, and he had even made the comment last episode that he has a lot to teach her and he doesn't feel like he has a whole lot of time. Um, and by God, he takes that seriously. Um, Darsh comes to Serenity when he learns, of course, what had happened and uh, Maeve's wants to change her path. Uh, Darsh feels he should come and speak to Weston himself. He's met Weston. He's traveled with Weston. They went all the way over to fight the Emperor together. They're considered old friends at this point. But still, if he's going to take his daughter on, Darsh feels he should ask and, of course, offer payment. You know, because that's just how that works. It's like, hey, you're going to take on my daughter. I got to pay for schooling. So Darsh shows up um, and only has to speak with Weston for a short period to to be like, yeah, I give the go-ahead for this if you'll take her kind of thing. And he's like, yes, definitely, 100%. I will, I will take her. Um, Maeve's very excited because she wasn't sure how her father would feel about it, but the fact that he's giving it two big thumbs up and all of his blessings makes her feel really good as well. So he entrusts um, Maeve into Weston's capable hands. Um, Ran, too, immediately throws himself into his training. Quan doesn't ask specifically why, but he seems to understand his son's desire to be pushed harder. Uh, so over the next year, he does that. He begins pushing him harder, training him harder, more often. Uh, and not only that, he starts branching into some of those other skills that he may need. Uh, which is, you know, Quan would always be training Rand to take his place one day. I mean, that would always be the assumption. Passing that that thing from father to son, mother to daughter, whatever the case may be. And not only is he a knight of serenity, very often on adventures, he's the sneaky one with Dandy. But the third one is something that Rand doesn't even know about, and neither does his wife, is that he's in charge of Shadow Company, which is basically the spies of serenity. Um, only he, the queen, and the king know who they all are. Um... And it's that way for very specific reasons. Um, there are probably a couple that are a bit more known to some of the other knights as well, but very few. It's only Ulrich, Mercy, and Quan who know all of them. And sometimes when he goes to do knightly stuff, he's doing Shadow Company stuff as well. He may be going to travel somewhere to meet up with someone who's spying somewhere else. In a city that could be a friend or an enemy. you got to know these things. And so he's going to want to train his son to be able to deal with that as well. So he starts training him harder in those skills as well. Moving quietly, hiding in shadows, climbing walls. The skills that normally would be reserved um, for thieves and things of that nature, and scouts, uh, he starts training him in those as well. Uh, for the record, uh, he's always meant, been meant to be a multi-class character. So he's, not, he's a fighter rogue, if you're looking at that from a class point of view. Alright, so um, there's that. Artists and Petal also begin looking at their training very, very differently. 
Um, up until this point, both of them, along with Maeve, were getting kind of a general education, right? You're learning spells, you're learning the stuff that a cleric would need, you're learning the stuff that a, a mage would need, your basics, your cantrips, the things that everybody learns. But now they're back home, they start honing in and focusing on what they want to do. Because you can be a cleric of Zorn and be more of a spellcaster or be more of a melee cleric. Um, and then when you look at Petal, we've talked about this in the past, that on my world, merge worlds very often choose a specialty. And not in the classic D&D sense. There was a thing back in 2nd edition where you chose a specialty and you could only cast those kind of spells. A specialty in mine is not to a specific type of class, but to a specific uh, type of magic. So, for example, the one I like to use is Tobias. Tobias was someone who specifically dealt with the creation and study of magic item and magic artifacts. There are also the Sea Mages that travel on Darsh's ships. We like to nickname the Smages. S-Mage, Sea-Mage. Uh, those specifically are trained for life on the sea. That's the, the life they want to live. Um, and there are many different... What Necromancer is another one of those. You know, one reanimation of the dead. Um, that's another type of specialization that you can still be a mage. And there are some clerics that can be that as well. Necromancy floats between magic of both types. And hello, Seaman. So... They start to hone in a little bit more on what they're wanting to do. And neither one's chosen any type of specific path, but they have started targeting the spells they're trying to learn. Um, instead of the general education, um, they're tr often trying to find a way to use their magic together. Spells that would complement each other or complement their friend's abilities. What could I cast that would boost Maeve and Deacon and Rand's abilities of like a blessing spell that would let them do better. Uh, as a healer, how can I heal better? Um, uh, Petal may be doing the same thing. Petal's kind of saying, okay, what spells can I cast? Obviously, I don't want to keep throwing fireballs in the middle of my friends. So what spells can I use to from a distance or to help them in different ways? And so they start looking specifically for those type of things. Because you can imagine you're in school. They're going to say, you know, they're going to be looking for what what is your spell? What are you good at? And try to help you that way. This is the first step of that. And if the things they're trying to learn, they do well with, then the mages were like, okay, this is where we'll start bringing you more towards that path. Then, um, Path is important. Because um, that's basically what a character class is, right? In Dungeons and Dragons, that's your, that's your, your class is your path. When I get to 3rd level, I can do this. When I get to 5th level, I can do this. When I get to 10th level, I gain this ability. That's the path you take, regardless of the adventure and the story or stuff. That's how you're going to proceed in life. And uh, that can be two different ways. Much like a class like this, or more of a destiny side. Which is what uh, Elder Deacon alluded to, Mr. Man in the Hat. That Seraph has a path in life, fate destiny, prophecy, whatever you want to call it, there's a path he has to take to get to the right spot in his life for the right thing to happen. Um, and that's about as vague as he made it, too. Um, so, everybody's always looking for that. Um, of course, all of their parents do the very best to not interfere with these changes. Uh, in fact, they instead encourage them on any hobbies, skills, abilities, or paths they may want to take. Um, 
You can remember, though, they were told to do that. Man in the hat. Said, whatever they're interested in, let them go with that. Encourage that. You never know what they're going to need down the road. Um, let's see. Bah, 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 bah. Uh, they couldn't help but worry, though, because, again, the words of the man in the hat haunted them. They knew that something had begun in Firemoon, and while they might not know what or where it would take their children, they were determined to make sure that they were as prepared as they could be. Um, so at the point that we're at right now, where I'm going to start this next bit of the story, it's been a little over a year since the attack on Serenity. Okay, This year's festival has come by. It ended a couple weeks ago. No problems. Okay, So that went perfectly fine. It had been great. Not as many people showed up as the year before. But overall, it was still a very successful festival. Artists lit the torch the right way this time. Nobody got attacked. Although there were a lot more guards around her when she was doing it. Um, and there have actually been absolutely no undead sighted anywhere within the borders of what would be considered serenity since the night of the previous year's festival. Which in itself is odd. Because even as hunters come through this area, it's usually because they weren't far away. But there's less and less undead even popping up outside of the borders immediately around uh, Serenity. It's almost like the undead are just staying away on purpose. So overall, over the past year plus, a little over a year, um, things have been rather peaceful. There have been no real battles. There have been no real enemy things happening. As always, there's going to be little things, toughs here and there. The Thieves' Guild only continues to get more brazen um, and continues to frustrate Mercy in her inability to crack down on it basically at all. Especially after what happened in Firemoon, she's now starting to worry, what if something like that happens here? A, a Rogue's Guild breaks out, even though the Black Rose at this point doesn't seem to target children and like the stuff that the happened in Firemoon, that's not to say other folks came in here that maybe were un more uncontrolled would. So she's trying to help crack down on that as well, uh, with very little success. Dandy, as I've mentioned before, can't get a word with the Thieves' Guild. They ignore her like the plague, which would be understood. Everyone knows she's the best friend of Mercy and Artemis and Darsh, and you know, not only is she the best friend, she's a kender. So it's not like she's going to be trusted to keep all the secrets. So they won't have anything to do with her. She's basically got a black mark on her name. And even a single pickpocket won't take a penny from her, but won't come near if they can help it. Um, they, uh, Quan's even tried to use the Shadow Company to get people in, but every single time, the person's found out before they ever get anywhere close to even within the very outer rings. Uh, they are completely unsuccessful. Somehow, they always seem to catch them. The rogues seem to catch the spies he sends through. And he's only sending a lot. You know, and he's using very talented people with no success. Uh, let's see. As I said, it's been nearly a month since the festival, and Deacon and Sarah should be returning in a week. So, there's an interesting thing. Deacon and Sarah should be returning from Firemoon within the week. Um, it was Sarah's first time back to Firemoon since the previous year, and had been allowed to accompany Deacon... Uh, though, to be honest, his parents don't think he really would have had much say in the matter, even if they tried to not let him. Um, he wanted to visit Dina. And 
the past year, Seraph had very much become a changed young man in many different ways. Um, no longer quite the silent one, you know, spending most of his time alone when he didn't have Deacon around. He'd become a bit more outgoing um, and spent more times with his friends, specifically, you know, the other kids of the heroes. Um, not only just spending time with them, but sometimes even training with them. Um, working with them, showing them, hey, here's what I know how to do. This is what Deacon knows how to do. This is how we work well together. Maeve, if we were doing this, it would be great if you were doing this. And, you know, hey, while this is going on, how would you assist? You know, so they start to work out their own little bits of here's how we can work together should we need to. They're not all just training separately. They're also training together. Um, so Draven and Artemis, of course, while they're happy, couldn't help but worry. They loved to see Seraph so much happier. And the thought of him being in love, well, that's what any parent would want for their child. They knew, though, that soon they would need to speak to him about his future. Because they're worried about Dina. And we're going to touch on something there. I haven't brought it before, although some of you may have already thought of this. Artemis, of course, is an elf. A race that lives for centuries, sometimes even thousands of years. Draven's parentage were two races with the capability to live even longer than elves. As such, barring any type of unnatural death, it was quite possible Seraph would live an incredibly long time as well. But Dina was a human. Her life would barely be but a moment of Seraph's own, and they feared he would set himself on a path that could only one day lead in heartbreak. So, they haven't brought the subject up with him yet, but it's something that they're aware of. They've probably discussed, like, hey, it's great. He's crazy about this girl. But 500 years from now, where is he going to be? He's still going to be here. She's not. And it's kind of one of those things where everybody, it's that unspoken it's that elephant in the room, right? It's that, we all know this, we just don't talk about it. I'm just not worrying about that right now. And, you know, as far as they know, it's first love. It may not go anywhere to begin with. Why cause drama? But if things do continue, it's something that they're going to have to address with him moving forward. Um, also, I should say that during this past year, all of the children now were armed almost all the time. Um, not only do they need their weapons for much of their training and such, uh, it was also for the protection. He was determined to be there twice now. <laughs> They've been in situations where being armed helped them. And carrying weapons around is not an unusual thing in this type of lifestyle, in this type of time period. So all of them are usually walking around with their weapons. I don't mean full armor, right? They don't have a backpack full of all their gear, but their sword's probably on their hip. You know, hoopack in Dandy's hand, which it always was anyway. Or, sorry, Petal's hand. Um, you know, dagger here, Morningstar here, whatever the case may be. Um, their parents, of course, have been sure that each had been given the highest quality of gear. Maeve's Warhammer had been replaced by a huge two-handed sword, the weapon she'd been drawn to since the events in the sewer, and the same style of weapon that Weston used. If you remember that, Weston has always used a huge two-handed sword. 
Darsh had searched both the Dwarven and Minotaur lands until he'd found one fit for her size and for her needs. And it was almost always now strapped to her back at all times. So she's just got this huge two-handed sword that she and Seraph could lift. Seraph could lift it. He could probably wield it. But that's not a weapon he's trained with. It's definitely not. He's much more of a smaller. He usually uses long sword, and he's much quicker. Um, sword like that would just slow him down. But he could pick it up. Uh, but her, it's quite a, a funny thing that you know Deacon can kind can get it above the ground, but he can't even swing it. You know, I mean, it's it's heavy and expertly made. All in all, the children, of course, were growing quietly or growing quickly. Uh, and this, of course, made their parents proud, but at the same time, made them quite nervous. Again, the words of the man in the hat always haunted them all. All right. So now we're going to cut into the meat of what's going to be happening next. It was late afternoon when the stranger walked into the store. Dandy had actually been just about to start closing up everything for the day, but immediately recognized him as a hunter. While her store, you can understand, her and Michael's store, majority of their stuff would be sought for by hunters and people who hunt undead. It's not like hundreds of them around. It also sells other stuff as well. So it's not only hunters that shop there. In fact, it's probably more commonly not a hunter that shops there. They still make decent, good weapons, gear, travel stuff that people may like. Um, They deal in certain flowers, roots, herbs, things that would be harmful to undeads and such that maybe even other herbalists and stuff might want. Hey, do you, I'd like to get this type of plant. I want to grow my own. So they have plants. Dandy has a garden where she keeps herbs and stuff where they would, you know, they can cut some off, spread it, and after it grows big enough, here's one for you. Sell the plant. So even the temple, there's trade. When the temple is like, hey, we're looking, I'm creating a magic item. I need some glass vials of this type. Can you get that? Yes, I can. The temple hasn't had a lot of luck. Dandia always has resources somewhere as far away as Paxual. Um, and rarely is there something that one eye can't get a hold of in Paxual if she really needs it. So, but this guy walking in was a, was a hunter. He was human in his mid-50s. Uh, that's approximately what she'd guessed, which in itself, pretty old for a hunter. Hunters don't hunt when they're older. You just can't. There's two ways that hunting ends. Either you retire because you're losing your edge or your speed, or you end up in the grave because you lost your edge or your speed. That's it. You've got to make that determination. Do you go out trying to kill them, or do you maybe do something like they are? Stepping back, training others, helping pass that knowledge along. A great example of that um, was their dwarven friend in Paxable who had a shop. You know, he was a hunter for 100, 150 years before he finally settled down and became a hub for hunters in the area, much like Dandy and Michael's store is now. Uh, but this guy was 50. Still, in, of course, incredibly good shape, but um, a bit older than you normally see. Um, because you will eventually get old and tired. You will eventually slow down. The dead never lose their edge. They're going to be the same pretty much forever. So, you get a little bit slower, you're going to die. Uh, The man had long hair uh, that was tied back. Again, not as uncommon, 
but still kind of uncommon for a hunter. Keep it short, harder for the undead to get a hold of. But it had already gone mostly grayish-white because of his age. Um, and he wore dark leathers, which again is to be expected. Thick, dark leathers that help hide you at dark is kind of the M.O. for, for hunters. Um, on his back, she noticed it when he's looking around, he had a beautiful large crossbow. It was made of a wood that she didn't recognize, but the design was clearly elven. And a just beautiful crossbow. She'd never seen anything quite like it. As he moved through the store, Dandy couldn't help but notice the way he moved. Smoothly, also with an elven type of grace. She had no doubt that he'd spent quite a bit of time among elves. Maybe learning, surviving, learning to be quiet. You can imagine how that would be awesome for a hunter. You, you, start, you make friends with some elves and you start with their parties and hanging out with a bunch of elves and they teach you to be quiet and move, that would be overwhelmingly helpful. Um, Dandy has passed a lot of those things on to Michael. Um, from just being a kender and being a rogue, Michael is a much better hunter because of the things Dandy's taught him. So, elven, same type of situation. Greetings, sir. Welcome to Serenity. What can I do for you? She started with Welcome to Serenity because if he was a hunter that lived here, she already would have known him. That's just hands down. The man looked her over for a moment before speaking. Uh, you are Miss Dandelion? Smiling, she replied, The one and only. Don't worry if you're surprised I'm a kender. That happens a lot. I know I don't look like most people expect. The man smiled and replied, I learned a long time ago that the way someone looks should never be used to determine their worth, skill, or character. It is a pleasure to meet you. Dandy found she immediately liked this man. He had introduced himself as Aaron. Now, not Aaron. I didn't realize till later. A-E-Y-R-E-N. It's an elven name. Aaron. A name that also sounded elven. Dandy didn't ask, though. It was also quite common for experienced hunters to go by different nicknames or names to help protect any family they may have. Because you may, you know, you may have living family, and the last thing you want is some lich you've been hunting to know you've got them. You know, you don't want to bring any attention to your loved ones. So going by different names, that's okay. People like Dandy and Michael, who, at their point, they use their names the opposite way. as hey, we can help you come here. They're using their names to attract people. Um, he explained that it was his first time coming through Serenity on his way northwest. Um, it was Dandy and Michael's fame that actually convinced him to stop by the city. It was a little off the path he was taking. Dandy, of course, was quite flattered and uh, assumed, assured him that Michael would be as well. Michael actually was due back any day now. Their old friend Weber in Paxawal had asked for his help. He'd been gone a couple of months but was on his way back now. Aaron said he didn't plan to stay that long, but he might stick around a couple of extra days just to be able to meet Michael as well. He said he couldn't wait too long, though. He had heard of a job far to the northwest. Dandy immediately grew interested. Pulling out some papers and a quill, she immediately began questioning him. And you can imagine this. Really? To the northwest? What type of undead was it? Did he know their numbers? Were they in large groups? Was there something leading them? Just immediately hitting him with these things. Aaron raised his hands defensively, making Dandy stop. <laughs> Beg your pardon, ma'am. Not that kind of a job. To be honest, it's not something I'd normally care about at all, but uh, 
reward is being offered and unfortunately just a little bit too much for me to be able to turn down. Dandy put her papers back into the drawer under the desk, her excitement crushed. There was a moment of silence before he began asking about some of the gear on the wall behind the counter. Dandy answered his questions politely, but she was tired from the day and ready to go home and check on Pedal. Her mind wandered a bit as she answered the questions from practice, naming prices and the uses of some of the gear and items as they offered. That they offered. Suddenly, like a brick wall, her mind stopped, shocked and startled by something he said. It's almost like she wasn't even listening. That little bit of voice in the back of her head, like, wait, what did he say? Wait, 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 said Dandy. What did you just say? The man looked at her, his brow raised in confusion. Excuse me, ma'am? I apologize, but please, what was it you just said a moment ago? I, I, I missed a bit of it, if you wouldn't mind. He's like, oh, I don't mind at all. Uh, I said you offer some of the nicest weapons and tools I've ever seen. But I'm not sure how much they'd be against Drow. Dandy felt her hands clenching tightly. What Drow? You all know there's a little bit of history there. Mercy was sitting at her desk, reviewing some reports from the border. Less refugees have been coming in from Oromon lately, and she couldn't tell if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Oromon was an empire in the midst of civil war. The clergy, worshippers of the goddess of Pandora, had ruled the empire for generations. But since of their death of their emperor, at Mercy's own hands no less, they had been fighting to regain their control of the, of the entire empire. Um... This had continued to grow harder as the rebellion fought to free the empire from their grasp. Little news made it to Serenity anymore, but what little they did get pointed to the rebels finally starting to win, a fact that pleased Mary or Mercy very much. The question she had to ask were, was, were there less refugees because it was harder to flee, or because there was finally a reason to stay? Either way, Whichever way this final this battle was going to be decided, it definitely wouldn't come quickly. The war was large, long, and neither side was ready to give up at this point. It hadn't spilled over into serenity other than through refugees, but the refugees were coming through long before their civil war, before the emperor was killed. So this has always been a safe haven for people to get out of Oromon and then on to the rest of their lives. So... When those less people are coming through, I mean, definitely it makes Mercy's life a little easier. There's less people to have to resettle. Many of them stay in Serenity, and she helps get them settled. It's not a money thing. She should care less about that. Um, but, you know, it worries her. Have Maybe the lands are cut off. Maybe people can't get here. They haven't been spending sending as many signs as, uh, spies in there at this point, just because of the volat volatility of the area. It just wasn't safe for many. So they just kind of kept a watch from the border what they could. Uh, let's see. A knock at her door interrupted her thoughts. One of her guards stepped in and advised her Miss Nettleleaf had arrived asking to speak to her. And it seemed quite urgent. Mercy looked out the window at the dark night sky. This was a late visit, 
which did not bode well. She nodded, and a few moments later, Dandy entered, entered into the room, a very concerned look on her face. We have a problem, she said. So, once again, issues are rising for our heroes. I didn't want you to, I want to make this clear. Not all adventures are now going to be their kids. These are still heroes. Kids are ways for they take over. But you may see them slipping in and out as, as, as needs be. Dandy, Mercy, and Artemis stood in the hidden room of Mercy's castle. As had become their ritual, they'd first give it a quite big look over to make sure that we were alone. They always check to make sure he's not in there. <laughs> Artemis had come as soon as she'd received Mercy's message. Within the short missive was hidden the phrase, To discuss our path, which had become their code to alert each other to issues that may affect their and their children's futures. Now they stood there waiting for Darsh to open his side of the mirror so they could begin their discussion. So, you can understand why drow, just the word drow popping up is immediately a concern for them. For several reasons. Number one, drow have been a thorn in their side since the beginning of Merge World. Drow served Nylat. There's a specific drow that Dandy has been hunting for since the very first adventure. The one that killed all, was in charge of the, the murder of the Kender village they came across. She's been hunting that prick for almost 18 years at this point, trying to find him. With absolutely no clue. So when she hears Drow, she immediately thinks, maybe he's there. On top of that, Deacon's elder Deacon, man in the hat, his words have given them additional things to be concerned with. Because Deacon's cousin is half drow. And, from what they know, a pretty powerful necromancer. Now, that they have to think about. Because it's not something that they really talked about yet. But, there are technically two of him. Right? If Nilat was his father, then he would have had to been born before any of these guys were uh, had children. But at the same time, the one from the future has come back as well. So there are technically two of them running around. Could they both be causing problems? He's old enough. Whoever would be would be close to 19, 20 years old minimum at this point. Hello, Phoenix. Welcome for coming by. Thank you for coming by. So that's something that you're like, hmm. So now that's a whole nother edge to the drow. Because remember, from what they're told, this half-drow necromancer was responsible for the attack of thousands of of undead on their kingdom. Another grudge they have. So drow, that word is a word that's going to draw their attention for many different reasons, all to be concerned with. So as I said, they're waiting for Darsh to open his side of the mirror so they could then begin this discussion. It was only a few moments before the large muscular minotaur appeared in the mirror. You're late, chided Mercy playfully, a smile on her face. Oh, my apologies, your highness, he replied sarcastically. I was in the middle of serious negotiations. We can tell, scoffed Mercy. It's still all over your chin. Darsh's eyes opened wide as he quickly raised his hand to wipe away any food that was still there, only to realize there wasn't any. The, threes, the three ladies had a moment of laughter while he looked at them all with a look of mock sadness. I can't believe you do that. This is the type, even in a moment of seriousness. 
they're going to just mess with each other. And Darsh is, Darsh was clearly eating. It's a safe bet that 99% of the time, Darsh, did you just, were you eating? Yes. How did you know? Because you're always eating. It's a, it's a Darsh uh, personality trait that's one of my favorites that he ever was given. The three ladies had a moment of laughter when he looked. Oddly, it was Dandy who stopped the mirth and brought the room to the issue at hand. It is good to have us all together, though I wish it were for happier reasons. The group then listened to her tale quietly, not interrupting. Dandy recounted everything that she'd learned from Aaron. There was a large city far to the northwest, further than any of them had ever traveled that way. The city's name was Dalveran. It was a good size, and it was self-governed. It seemed it was a local trading hub for the area, and was quite popular with its neighbors. Now, according to what Aaron said, sometime in the past few years, a large group of drow had moved into the area nearby, into a cave system in a nearby mountain. The citizens had hoped the best at first. Maybe the two groups could somehow coexist, just kind of stay out of each other's way. Sadly, it hadn't taken long for trouble to start. First, it was missing animals, crops, then attacks on farmsteads and travelers, robbing them, basically. Finally, the drow had begun to rob and murder anyone passing through the area, including, recently, the young children of a local noble family. The city itself had adequate wealth. What it didn't have was manpower. Its military was small, and its city guard really designed to protect the city. They just didn't have the people to go on a large-scale assault against drow. On top of all that, the drow were nearly impossible to track, because they're drow. And the cave system that they live in, from what the, what the locals knew of it, was a literal maze that gave the drow an incredible advantage, should they be tracked there. Without any other options, the city had put word out far and wide, offering a king's ransom to any one person or group that could come in and help end the drow threat once and for all. Now, from what he'd heard, multiple mercenaries, bounty hunters, like himself, even some hunters, had gone through there, yet none of them had been successful, some giving up, some disappearing completely. For Aaron, it seemed the money would do a lot for him. There was a village, a small town, that he'd helped save from an undead attack about a year earlier. Sadly, though, not before there had been a lot of loss of life. A lot of the young men had been killed, such. A lot of the, the healthier folks had left a lot of the very young and very old left alive, because those who went out to fight the undead, to keep them away from their village, had died. So the, the village itself was having a hard time getting by, and the money he could use to help that village. Um, on top of that, he said it was well known that drow wizards were, used dark magic, especially necromancy. So stopping them now might stop a future undead situation before it ever begins. Those two motivations were all he needed. I can help these people with the money, and I can maybe stop undead from rising. That's all a hunter needs to be able to say, okay, I'll travel the next six months to get there. He said he had several other well-experienced hunters he knew that were also going to be meeting him there. Some of them, he said, the very best. So now they had an odd situation on their hand. This city, far distance away, well far from the border of Serenity. 
and to the northwest, one of the few directions that they normally haven't traveled. Now, directly to the north, there's a frozen area. They've only been in a little bit. That's where Michael found Menandra back in the day. If you head to the northeast, eventually you'll get to a desert area. That's where their friend the Thrycreen that they saved from the dragon years ago was. I have all this still memorized. You guys probably don't remember any of that, but I'm mentioning it anyways. If you go directly west, eventually you'll get through Firemoon and all the way over to Darkmoor if you were to keep going. A little bit more northwest. So, of course, in between that slice of the pie, right? North, northwest, there's all the different degrees of a circle that there could be anything in between those areas. But in the northwest, they really haven't traveled. They went a little bit northwest to get to what they were calling the intergalactic prison. <laughs> or the entity prison at this point, where all the beholders and stuff, that they had to use that shortcut to try to get into Oromon years earlier. That's the furthest northwest they'd ever been. This is well past that. So what does that mean to them? Really, this isn't any of their business. There's a city up there. Sure, it's in trouble. But they don't know anyone there personally. They don't owe them any type of allegiance. And as people who rule kingdoms and things at this point, that matters. It's not like they're just, oh, well, you, you, we don't owe you anything, you're crap. It's not that. But it's all, hey, we have a lot of people we're responsible for. Do we set them aside to go help strangers? And in their earlier days, wouldn't have thought twice. They all have a lot of responsibilities and responsible for a lot of lives. Everyone except Dandy. Dandy could up and leave tomorrow. As long as she knew Petal was taken care of, she could go. Close up the store for a few months and she'd be gone. Um, okay, so Kingsport. Jim's asking a question about um, another location. So, I'll just give an example on our map to give you an idea. Alright? Let's say that Serenity is California. And Darkmoor is New York. If that makes sense. Okay? So, Kingsport is several days travel north of Darkmoor. So, to Serenity, that's really just more west. Because there's all that land in between them and all that land above them. They're that far apart that north and northwest for them would take them way higher north than Kingsport would be. If that makes sense. Like, if I was in California and I went northwest, I'll be cutting into Canada, I'll hit the Atlantic, I'll never even come close to New York. So, they're that, those areas are that far apart. Back when they went to Darkmoor, they traveled for several months to get there at Draven speed. Which is the only reason they got there as quickly as they did. It would have taken much, much longer than just traveling along by themselves. So again, giving the scope of how big Merge Worlds is... If you went on one side of it, got on a horse, and went to the other side, and if it was flat, and you did not stop to eat, sleep, or take a dump, it could still take you years to cross all of Merge Worlds. They don't know what most of the world is at this point. It hasn't existed long enough for them to know what's in 99% of this world. They only know a tiny single grain of, a grain of sand's worth of the world that they exist, which is a beach. You know what I mean? So, yes, Kingsport is north of Darkmoor, but that's all way west of anything they would be dealing with anytime in the near future, if that makes sense. Good question, though. I appreciate that. 
And that's a thing for you listeners out there. As I put out more D&D content, I'm looking at potentially writing some of these adventures into modules that people could use to run their own games with. Um, you can use Merge Worlds in a way like that, where there's so much land, I can put a group of people up here in the middle of nowhere, and they have their own world-changing adventure. It has no effect on these folks at all. That's one of the reasons why I made it so big. It gives me a massive canvas with which to paint upon. Um, just a, a brief aside there. So again, they're trying to decide, okay, what are we going to do? Do we go and deal with this? Do we take a force of people? We don't know how many drow there are. Sounds like there's a lot. But do we really know? Because to be honest, a few drow is still a big problem. If they're attacking travelers and such, it may just be a relatively small group of them, or it could be a huge group of them. Those type of numbers and details, Aaron didn't have. So that's something that they have to they have to do with. We go up there and we get mixed up in that. What are we getting mixed up in? Is it a war? Are the four of us going to make that big of a difference? They're going to say that, but I think we all know that four of them would make a huge difference, even in a war, right? On a battlefield, they could make that big of a difference. Of all four of them, Artemis could make the biggest difference on a battlefield because the amount of healing and blessings she could throw on people and saving lives could literally change the tide of battle. Darsh and Mercy, Dandy, great fighters, could probably kill a lot of people, but Artemis can literally change wars. Just to give a scope of how powerful her healing is at this point. She could change wars. She, she can bring some of her clerics with her. She can end wars. Depending on their size. Not Oromon's size. That's even too big for her. But to give an example, again, of, of the capabilities of some of these characters at this point. So they have to talk. At the same time, what if these drow are the drow we're looking for? One of the two groups. The drow from way back in the day that Dandy's sworn to hunt down. And they don't like him either, but it's really Dandy's cause. Or if it's Nylat's son, or the group with them. Either group, right? It said, it said from the message that the, the drow had moved in within the past couple of years. Maybe that's because that's when he came, you know, he's come back from the future. Maybe him and he, he didn't come alone. Or maybe he did come back and gather some followers. And that's where they're staying now. Far enough away that they can't find him, but close enough that if he wanted to march, oh, a few thousand undead down, he might be able to pull that off. So there's a real balancing act on the scales here of what do we want to do? Do we need to get involved? Is it anything that we need to do? And as they discuss this, they all realize they need to know. But one other question haunts them. Would they have gone if they didn't know Nylad had a son? Oh, something to think about. If they do go now, because they know that, are they somehow breaking the path? Are they somehow changing things that shouldn't be changed? This is a big fear. They've been walking that tightrope now for a year. Always in the back of their mind, would I have done this? Is this what I would have done normally? It's Dandy that kind of squashes that. She says two things. Number one, I don't care. I don't care. If I didn't know about him, I'd still be going. 
because he's not really the drow I'm looking for. I want to find him too. Don't get me wrong. He's a threat to Michelle, yes. But there's another drow out there I want even more. So yes, whether we knew anything about Nylant, I would still be going. Even if it means by myself. No disrespect. I would still be going. Just as I'm going to be going now. The other three are like, well, that's, that's a good argument. Dandy would have had the exact same argument. Listen, I'm going. And there's no way in the world they're going to let little Dandy go alone. So they decide, yes, okay, then fine. We're going to go up, we're going to take a look into it. We're not going to take a force with us. The last thing I'm going to do, Mercy says, last thing I want to do is A, pull away a, a chunk of defenses of Serenity to march weeks and weeks, maybe months, to get there, and then march into another place. They're going to think I'm coming to attack them. That's just too many problems. I can't weaken serenity by doing that. So if we're going to go, it's we need to make it a small group. And it's probably best we keep it as hush as possible. People not know where we're going. You know what I mean? If there are people out there watching us, Nylat's son, it might be better he not know where we're going. We don't want him to use that as an opportunity to come at the kids or try to mess with the kids' futures. So we, we don't want anyone to know. So they talk about it. They decide that they're only going to tell their immediate spouses and a couple people that need to know. So, you know, a couple of the knights are going to need to know. A couple of the clerics are going to, like, Miasha. You know what I mean? Tevin, Draven, these people are going to need to know. You know, these guys disappear for half a year. They're, they're going to be noticed by everybody. These people need to know where they really are so they don't go taken off trying to find them. Because <laughs> that could happen. So, they determine this can happen. Dar, Dar says he wants to go as well. Um, you know, again, this is, this is something... He said he's at a point right now where the business is kind of running itself. Uh, Jorn has basically, for all intents and purposes, become vice president of his business. I don't know what you call that, but in their, in their society, I need to come up with a name. But basically, uh, he's Darsh's right hand, which he always has been, but now he's got the authority to move funds. Like He, he could be like, someone's like, I want you to invest in us building this store. He has the authority to say, yeah, I'll dump 10,000 gold on that. Here's what we want as a price. He's now making those decisions on behalf of Darsh. And of course, he works very well in hand with Lyra, Darsh's wife. Lyra has always been an active part of the business. She's still the one that handles all the Kronar store management, all the shipping and things of that nature. So her and Jorn work well, very much so together. Um, she stepped back a bit once they started having kids, but she's still an active person. She, she sits there at the house all day working and stuff, and if Darsh is gone, Jorn will be there every day if he's not out on a ship having to deal with business, coming back and making sure everything is okay. Plus you have Rokar, who is his cousin, who's also the equivalent of Jorn, who also has authority to make those type of things. His wife Sasha gets to help as well. So there's a ton of people that can watch his business for a while, he trusts with, that he can come and help as well. But he's going to need a few days to make arrangements. They're like, okay, it's going to probably take us the same as well. We'll make they make some plans. Here's what we're going to do. The hardest part that they have for Darsh is they decide that they're not going to tell Maeve he's going to be there. Because if he just pops in and then they leave two hours later, which is kind of the plan. So if he's walking around, people are going to suspect stuff. You notice Darsh. He's famous in this area as well. He saved their lives a million times. So if... <laughs> If it's one of those things where, you know, Darsh pops up, that's noticeable. So Darsh is going to pop up. Their plan is to leave very early in the morning before the city really gets active. Get the heck out of there as quickly as possible. They don't 
want Maeve to be like, hi, Dad's here. I'm leaving for six months. No. He'll see her on the way back. Just kind of why he looks at it. He just doesn't want to kind of tease her like that. Especially since he's only got to see her very rarely in the past year as well. Sometimes she comes home for her month. He might be gone for two or three weeks of that on business. He's a busy dude. He's a noble. You know what I mean? He runs his own personal merchant guild at this point. So they all agree to the plans. Like, all right, we're going to leave in three or four days. Four days. We're going to leave in the morning. Here's so on and so forth. As always, here on this end, they're going to make sure that they have all the supplies they need. Uh, they will. There's tons of supplies inside the keep at all times. You know, it's for siege purposes. So it's nothing for secretly Artemis, Mercy, and a couple of the knights to stock up the chest of holding. You know what I mean? And then all they have... And, and Mercy has her new little sidekick now, the little half-elf. Remember, that I forget her name, I'll have to look it up. Who that works for, who runs the keep. It's going to be nothing for her to be like, hey, we just took... All this wheat, all this flour, all this leather, all these nails, all these hammers, and two barrels of pickled fish. They're gone now. And she's like, okay, let me change the paperwork so nobody asks questions. You know, that's kind of part of her job as well. You know, when it, when it comes to the money stuff, she doesn't have access to the money, but she keeps to keep running. So Mercy's like, you need to make these barrels of pickled fish like they never happened. Or get them replaced, that kind of thing. Um, so on so forth. So they make their plans. They all split up. Uh, Darsh is currently living on Darshtopia, where the mirror is, and they're running most of the business from there. Um, he doesn't get over to Kronayar as much as he used to. Now Jorn does a lot of that running. He deals a lot with the actual day-to-day -day on Darshtopia. Um, as it has become a major trading hub for the elves, humans, Minotaur, and the dwarves, who have their own navy now, remember? They've had ships for a few years. Um... A lot of them come there to trade. A lot of them have stores and warehouses there and literally make those trades. It's considered neutral ground. Darsh is considered a safe port for anybody. Um, and Darsh's security and his own sh fleet is pretty big at this point. Uh, and you mess with one of Darsh's ships or someone on his island and Darsh will send hell after you. Uh, so it is, it is known that's a safe port for anyone. Um... So he has to make arrangements with Lyra, who always understands, hey, you're going to go off save the world. I understand that. You've done that a few times. I married a dude who does that. I totally understand. Mercy has her conversation with Ulrich. It goes 50% the same way. I understand. I don't like it. I'd rather go with you. One of us has to be here to run the kingdom. I get that. I married a woman who saves the world over and over again. I get that. But I'd really like you to take some of these knights. She's like, no. But I'd like you to take three of these knights. No. I have two knights that have to go with you. No. There's no way you're leaving the kingdom without this knight right here. I'm going alone. Okay, but I don't like it. And that's kind of how their conversations always go. It's like, you can't... That's one of those things, you know. Like I said, he is a king, but he is a minion of mercy before anything else. When, when shit hits the fan, mercy starts giving orders... He does. You know, he knows how to lead. He's a hero. He's not like a peon by any means. I don't mean to put it that way. But it's one of those things where you know, mercy, mercy runs shit. That's the way it's going to be. And one day when artist becomes queen, it's going to be the same way if mercy has her way as it should be. It is because you understand that even serenity has to have official laws, right? And if you have official laws, and if you have a king and queen, you're going to need some type of thing of, 
what's the rules when this happens? And it was very quickly put down, hey, boy or girl does not matter. It goes to eldest child. Unless the eldest child doesn't want it. <laughs> and that's the thing. There is a way to abdic uh, what's it? abdicate, abdict, abduct, to quit your job as the king. I can't think of the word. Abduct the throne, abduct the throne. It's a word I can't think of. But quit your job and stop being a king or queen. There's a path for that. Never had to talk about it. But it does exist. The young lady who played Mercy was quite important, or it was quite important to her that she had those rules down in their bylaws. Um, so he really wants her to take a night, but she's like, no, you need them here. They all have jobs and responsibilities of not only the defense, but the running day to day. They are all lords of their own stuff. I mean, they're all that, they're nobles considered at this point as well, as well as there's other people that are nobles as well. Ulrich's unhappy, but he understands. Again, especially... Abdictate. Thank you, Ashley. I appreciate that. Abdictate the throne. Abdicate. Abdicate. I said it wrong. Abdicate the throne. I'm still probably pronouncing it wrong, but she, she spelled it right, I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, that's one of those things where the second half of this is, hey, we have to tell our spouses we're going to go do this. We, meaning the four of them, are going to go do this. But we can't tell you anything about what we learned from the man in the hat. That there's a that there's a, a fire moon half drow out there, and that he's a threat and he's a necromancer. So they have to explain why it's important they go without telling them half of the reason why they're going. None of them like that. But they know how important it is that they do that. So they make their arrangements. The second one's correct. Thank you, Ashley. I appreciate that. Artemis's conversation didn't go quite as well. Because Artemis is not going alone. Artemis is taking Percy. So Percy is the second in command of all the knights. You all remember Percy, right? His name has popped up a few times over the past few years. Um, when Seraph was sick and it turned out he was just hungry. It was Percy who was responsible for watching them at the time. Percy was the knight many, many years earlier when the hundred-plus Oromanian elites attacked the temple, he was the young man who protected the children. And when they all showed up, he was standing there with a sword sticking out of his stomach. He still wasn't letting people through. Per, you know, Lucas immediately was like, there's something special about this kid, I'm going to keep him around. And he's proven it. He's become basically second in command under Ian. Ian was the second under command of Lucas. I, for the record, yes, I have an entire military leadership structure for this temple. These are things I'll touch on in things like um, Behind the Dice, when I talk about how the temple is run. There are people with specific ranks and jobs there that were all decided by the young lady who played Artemis and I together working on that. Uh, so that's that's an in-depth thing that I could dedicate an episode to, that, that just dedicate to the Temple of Serenity. How it's run, what it looks like. I've got maps. All that kind of stuff. Drawings of what the temple looks like. So... Percy is the one who is... Ian runs the... Unlike Lucas, who ran everything and still left and then left Ian in charge, Ian stays there in charge. The temple's too big now. It's responsible for too much stuff. There has to be someone there in charge of the Templar side of the temple. 
that's his job. He stays there. But one of those jobs is making sure that Artemis is protected. And if she's going to go sneaking out here, she's going to go with Percy. If she says no, she's going to go with Percy. If she sneaks out without them knowing, no matter what happens, she's going to find out she's going with Percy. Because that's just how this works. Percy's well-trained, he's a warrior, and he will stand in front of any bullet coming anywhere near Artemis without thinking twice. That's the kind of guy Percy is. At this point, Percy's in his... He was only like 20, 21 back then, so he's probably like early 30s at this point. So Percy's going with them. So Percy's the only NPC that will be traveling with them. Okay? So we got Darsh Mercy, Artemis Dandy, Percy. Now, the last conversation ends up being the hardest. And that's Michael and Dandy. Sure enough, a day or so later, Michael returned on schedule like he would. It's understood that if Michael's going to be traveling away for months at a time, he takes one of their little crystal orbs that they can communicate with so he can reach back and say, hey, I'll be home. This is where I am. I'm on Paxwell. I'll be back in three weeks. That type of a thing. Because if you're leaving for months at a time, these guys are going to do the same thing. They're going to take one or two of their crystals with them so they can reach back to Ulrich. Here's where we are. This is what's happening. We're going to be a month longer than we thought. So that way they're not sitting there for six months, 12 months, not knowing if the people they love are out there dead. So they have a way of communicating should they need to. Michael is already returning home. He makes it home next day. They end up having a conversation about what's going on. Michael doesn't like it. And it actually goes into a bit of an argument. And it's not so much that he doesn't trust her, or she doesn't, he doesn't think she'll be safe, and he doesn't think that she can take care of herself. This is one of the areas of their life that they have a, that they have a disagreement on, and have had a disagreement for a very long time. Michael doesn't like how much this drow has become an obsession for Dandy. And... Does this mean she's always going to drop everything to go after every drow she hears of until she finds someone who may not even still be alive? Who she may never see? Merge World's huge. Is that going to dictate the rest of their lives together? Is she going to go off somewhere and die chasing the wrong drow, leaving her kid by herself? It's not something... You know, they understand heroes helping people and so on and so forth. But when Dandy's having the conversation with Michael... It's more of, and we're going to go see if he's there. And if he's there, I'm going to find him. And if, he's, if I find him, I'm going to kill him. I mean, it's not a, we're going to go help this town. Which, for Dandy's a good person. She does want to help people. She doesn't like the sound of that. But she can't help, but... And while I'm doing that, I'm going to find him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to take care of him, finally, so we can hurt nobody ever again. That kind of thing. Because in her mind, oh, this sounds exactly like the thing he'd be doing. You don't know him. You saw him one time. Twice. When you fought him the second time. You don't know anything about this girl. So that becomes part of their argument. And Dan, you know, as they're sitting there at the table, and their voices don't get met. It's not a yelling argument, but it's definitely a we don't agree on this. And Michael understands she's going. I mean, at this point, he knows there's nothing to do to stop her. Which means he'll be staying until she returns. He won't be going out anymore, which is fine. Like all of the parents, there's pretty much an agreement. One of us will be with the children at all times. There's dangers out there for the kids. We're going to make sure they're protected. So if Dandy's gone, Michael's in town. If Michael's gone, Dandy would have stayed until Michael got back. With a couple minor exceptions, if Draven was staying with Petal, she probably would have been okay with it. Because, you know, for powerness, powerhouse. And again, you got to remember, Michael and Draven don't know the man in the hat. Still not out there trying to kill them. 
So they've got that, you're going to leave, and he's out there. You know, there's all that kind of argument, and Dandy can't tell half the stuff that she knows. But she's adamant she has to go, but she can only tell the parts he knows, which makes her seem even more obsessed, right? So when they're having this discussion at the table, firmly but with no heated voices, because I don't even know if a Kender could have an angry argument. It'd be funny to see. Well, they're going through there. She says, Michael. And at one point, she just puts her hand up and he stops. He goes, Michael, we've talked about this. We've talked about this time and time again. We are going to go. And we're going to see if he's there. Okay? Our group has traveled many, many times in many dangerous situations. I understand the concern. I'm concerned myself. I want to come home. We can't let this lie. If he's there, we have to find him. Michael, I mean, that was pretty much the, her saying, this is the end of it. And she, and just, and again, when she does it, she gets calm. She's just very straight to the point, very short. This is what's happening. Nothing you can do to stop this. We're going to go. We're going to take care of this. Michael kind of nods in understanding. He's like, okay, I've made my points. I've done all I can do. That's basically the, the, the look he gives. He says, I'm going to check on pedal before bed. He gets up and he leaves. And Dandy's just sitting there thinking. And as she is, she does something that she does quite often. She just has a dagger in her hand and it's just twirling the blade. It's dancing between her fingers. And as it does, she's just sitting there and all she can see is the face of that drow in her head. And she swears. She goes, if he's there, she will not rest until her blade is in that man's heart. Like, that's just all she can think about. She's seething in anger just thinking about that guy and the chance she might finally get to find him. Because she's angry at him. It's not like, oh, thank goodness I can finally kill him. It's a, I'm angry that this even has to happen. I'm, my husband's mad at me. My kid's not going to see me for a while because I have to find you and kill you. This is your fault, too. I mean, it's just one of those things. So several days later, as planned, Darsh comes through the mirror and climbs right into the chest of holding. As normal, Draven is going to get them a short distance away. He's going to travel them, basically save them a day and a half, by traveling them to where the realm gate is. They're not going to be going right to the realm gate, but near it. And then he's going to go to the realm gate, where now there's actually a considerable sized force. It's actually a small town kind of thing. It's more of a... Imagine a backwards castle. Right? Think about that. Fire Moon has the same thing. Imagine a backwards castle. So the castle is shaped like a ring, but everybody lives on the outside. The realm gate's in the middle. If that realm gate opens and something comes through that they don't want coming through, they have a wall built around it, defense, to be able to keep that from happening. So more bad stuff doesn't come through. If an army's coming through, 10,000 can't come through. They don't have that much room before they're going to hit a wall of literally a physical wall as well as was it, a ballista, the arrows, cauldrons of hot oil, all that stuff, but facing inwards. Because all the land outside of there is a serenity. That's safe. But in that ring, remember, anybody finding a key and finding out the name of that realm gate can come to it. 
Might be somebody they have no idea who it is. Hell, a demon could walk through. They have no idea what could come through there. And on occasion, unexpected strangers come through and find themselves like, oh, cool, a realm gate. We walk through and, oh my God, there's a thousand arrows pointed at me. It's just one of those things. Like, hey, just coming through and, you know, they check in. I'm a traveler. I'm coming through. I learned the realm gate. Okay, you're by yourself. Okay, fine. Pass on through. We're not here to say you can't come to Serenity. We're just making sure nobody bad does. So when they get there, there's going to be horses. Draven's going to show up like, hi, I need five horses. They know Draven. They're gonna, Draven has the equivalent rank of mercy with a little seal. Says The queen says, give me five horses. Okay, five horses. Draven walks off with five horses. Nobody asks any questions about it. For all they know, he might eat them. There are rumors about Draven in Serenity. And I'm not going to tell you whether they're true or not. Ha <laughs> ha! Okay, so that's kind of what happens. He, zo- he zooms them out. He goes and gets the horses. Brings them to them. There maybe takes about 30 minutes to bring the horses to where he's got them in the woods. A ways away from the little gate fortress, which I probably need to come up with a name with now that I think about it. Uh, but I'm going to come up with a name for it. Uh, and they're going to, they get on their horses, they go to leave. Again, our four heroes and Percy, who's a Templar. But they've gone to minor lengths to make that a little bit harder to tell. So Mercy's traveling in traveling armor and so, so on and so forth. Uh, but she's not wearing anything with the crest of serenity on it. Darsh, he's not wearing any of his, he doesn't wear a lot of crests anyways, but he'll have a cape. Sometimes with that little one seal, like a circle thing that's got his family crest on it. That stuff's all packed away in the chest of holding. Artemis is in her robes like normal, because those robes doesn't necessarily mean she's Artemis. It just means she's a powerful level healing cleric. Percy's not wearing any Templar armor either. They've arranged to get him some generic armor, because there's always going to be some lying around. Um, but they've still got their weapon gears and things of that nature, because most of that stuff's not going to be noticeable. The only one that might be a little bit <clears throat> is Percy's sword, which is, has the emblem of a Templar on it, but he can still play off that he's a minor Templar bodyguard to Artemis. He just doesn't want anything that shows their serenity. Because if this does go wrong, the last thing they want is this new city to think serenity is attacking them or spying on them. That's another concern. So they're going to make their way out of here without trying to draw as much attention as they can. They actually spend several weeks traveling without any issues. It's actually very calm, enjoyable travel. Once it takes them about three or four days to get out of the woods, because it's a giant forest north of Serenity. Once they finally get out of the woods, the lands north of that are countryside. Occasional rolling hill, but mostly flat. Vegetation, water supplies, good land. At some point, Serenity might even consider going north, but at this point, the time it would take to get up here... There's just too much land readily available on their side of the forest to make the trouble of coming all the way through it. Um, But, you know, who's to say what the future would bring? But they travel several weeks, and it's not long before they're, you know, after a week or so, they're kind of further than they normally go. They, They, you know, they've had a few people do a little bit of looking around in the area, but more often than not, they just verify there's no threats. The only thing that's even close in this area is Kenderholm, the little... Kenderville village uh, that uh, Pappy, <laughs> Pappy lives in. Uh, so they're very careful to avoid the Kender village. Adds a couple days to their trip to go widely around it, but they feel it's for the best. One, it's a good chance to be recognized, especially Dandy. She's a, she's a bit of a Kender uh, celebrity at times. Uh, and so that's another 
reason Kender comes through Serenity, which not everybody in Serenity is that happy about. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, to avoid them, just to not get stopped, not to get slowed down, or lose half their gear. So they're careful to avoid that as they make their way northwest. So it only takes a few weeks before they're really in lands they've never traveled in before. Um, and as I said, it's very nice land. Um, it's easy, flat. I talked about that. In fact, Mercy even you know, says herself, it's kind of odd no one settled here. The land likes it. looks like it would be good for farming. We've come across multiple river, rivers, small lakes, and ponds. Ready available water. There's not a lot of rocks that I could see that would need cleared out. Occasional trees. But a lot of this land would be good for farming. Um, it's kind of surprising they don't see anybody. But then again, there's often been the conversation. Is it possible that merged worlds has parts of worlds where nobody lived. Maybe the worlds where there were no intelligent creatures. It was just animals or nothing. It's possible. Huge chunk of land that could have been unclaimed land. You know, imagine if a big chunk of Siberia where nobody lives or northern Canada where nobody lives got thrown in there. There may not be anybody there. Bunch of trees, bunch of snow. Doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be people. Still, with it being as merged world as old as it is, a little odd they didn't find anything. So they continue on. So after they've been traveling for about two and a half weeks, three weeks, somewhere in there at this point, they finally see the first sign of any type of civilization and immediately know that no one lives there. Uh, it appears to be a farmstead. They actually came across the field first where crops were grown. Uh, the first sign that it's not being currently used, is it's growing wild. Looks like it was originally corn, and you know, but there's a lot of weeds and stuff. It's not been tilled. It's just wild corn at this point. Uh, if any of you know anything about farms, if you just leave a farm as it is, the corn cobs and such in there will just start to go all crazy. It'll spread out and all the weeds and grass and there's no longer tilled even rows. Um, so, in this situation, that's what they come across. Uh, you know, they snap a bunch of corn off and gather it up, because, you know, that's free food on the way, with the assumption of, if we find someone and this is their field, we'll pay them for it and give them their corn back, but if not, that's, you know, you know, find corn everywhere. We'll grab some corn or whatever other vegetables, maybe find some melons or something, growing wild at this point. And they would do that. That's a common occurrence in Dungeons & Dragons. Hey, we need to restock our food. Okay, we're looking for berries, nuts, put some tra catch a deer, catch a rabbit, catch a pheasant. You know, they don't always live off of what's in the chest of holding. They try to live off the land, save the chest of the holding in case they need it. But when they make it, finally, they find the farmhouse. They can see that it's an old farmhouse and it's been empty for a long time. Uh, years and years at this point. It's in rough shape uh, and half of it's caved in. Now, of course, they still call out just in case anybody's living in the rubble, but other than maybe a bird flying out, rabbit running or something. There's really no signs of life there. Regular birds and animals. I'm not giving the implication that, you know, it's dead quiet. It sounds like a regular place where there's no people. They start looking around a little bit. Maybe there's a well here. They can fill up their water skins. They haven't seen water. There's a farm here. They've got to have access to it. And sure enough, they see the remains of a well. Um, there's no bucket. They might be able to, you know, rig something up. Uh, of what they got in their chest and, and get down and get some water. They drop a rock, they hear a splash, that kind of thing. While they're doing that, they're looking at the home. Darsh is looking at the home along with Mercy while Dandy's trying to 
come up with this cool rope trick thing with the bucket that she saw uh, a hunter do once that Artemis just keeps rolling her eyes at. And uh, Dandy and Dar- Mercy and Darsh are looking at the house. And at the same time, pretty much, they immediately realize uh, something's out of the normal. And they look at each other and they're like, give each other a look like, okay, you see it too? Okay. And they're like, hey guys, come on over here for a minute. Dandy, who's wrapped around with rope and got a bucket on her head, is like, what? Oh, okay. And they set down the rope and her and Artemis come over. They're like, what is it? And they're like, look at the roof. They're like, yeah, it's caved in on one side. I'm like, they're like, it's kind of caved in on one side. It's a little hard to tell because it's fallen in since then. You see that line right there? And they're like, yes. That was something sharp. Something big and sharp smashed into the roof of this house and caved that side in. You can see where the blades are evenly slit. Big logs, evenly slit by something large. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you're right, I can see that. They're like, now again, it's got mold all over it. This is probably more than 20, 20, 30 years ago. This looks like it's pre-merge kind of situation. Um, But it's there. So something we need to be aware of. So I'm like, all right, let's start looking around. So they start looking around, Dandy checking the house and such. First for traps, of course. Doesn't find any. Or roll the one and doesn't know. But she's searching the house and doesn't appear to set off anything. Uh, but she's looking through the rubble, seeing if she can find anything, while everybody else is kind of looking around outside. Dandy's able to squeeze through a hole in some of the wood to get inside. Dar stays nearby in case it starts to sound creaky and he needs to try to lift something up to get her out. But she's very light and she's very easy to move around in there. Um, both of them, both groups, Dandy and then the other three, kind of come across something uh, each. They both find bones. The bones appear to be human. Um, The problem that they run into is that inside the house, Dandy finds the top half of a skeleton. The bones are kind of crumbled, and it's laying on the floor underneath some stuff. Um, Mercy and Artemis found the bottom half of a human about 30 feet away, just past the well. Both of them, when they look at it, there's a clean cut through the bones. Again, like something literally severed this thing in half. And either threw or chucked or the other half crawled away, somehow half of it ended away from the other half. It's all bones at this point. No meat, no nothing. Even the clothing that would have been on the person is completely worn away. So again, this is just giving that, hey, it's been a very long time. I'm definitely trying to get the point across. It's been a long time. This isn't recent. Hopefully you're all catching on to that. At this point, they're like looking at the shape of the bones and such. They're like, wow, this could be this could be more than 30 years or even longer that this since this has happened. This is this is a lot of decay. And even the outside bones, they might expect a little more on the inside ones, which are kind of in the rubble of the house. Those would have been a little bit more covered from outside sources. May have laid to last a little bit longer. But now they're both completely wasted away. It's just the bones crumbled there at this point. So they're like, okay, well... And not all the bones are there. Yeah, most of them. They're not digging for every one. They don't seem to find anything else of value. Again, everything is wilted and molded away at this point. Anything, even old chairs and such, are crumbled and fallen apart at this point. So there's nothing of value. Uh, but it's definitely something they're like, okay, well... Old, they start looking around for tracks. Right? We're going to use our tracking skills. Do we find any footprints? That seemed big. Do we find any big footprints? Do we find anything that looked like they were big footprints, but now is like a lake 
or a small pond. You know, the kind of common sense you would ask if you were playing a game like this. You're like, okay, something big. What shape is that pond over there? Is it shaped like a foot? I mean, that's the kind of things you've got. To, how big is this thing, right? That's the thoughts that they're going to have as a character. What We've got to figure out what, what would be around here. But they don't find anything like that. There's no signs of footprints or anything of that nature. Um, anything, of course, had it been anything a long time ago, it may have washed away at this point through rains and just dirt and such. That'll happen. Uh, but definitely nothing recent, nothing that even looks several years old. Uh, it looks pretty much unmarred. It's mostly just overgrown uh, vegetation at this point. After spending a little time there, they decide they're going to move on a little bit further. Hopefully, they won't run into any more of these things. Uh, but they do. As they continue on over the next few days, the same type of situation continues to repeat itself. They find old farmsteads, overgrown, abandoned. Buildings. Not just the buildings, but even things like fences or silos, barns. Very often, large amount of damage. Some of them completely collapsed, but... If you look right enough, you could see where something large smashed one corner of this barn and it collapsed into it. You know, these guys aren't engineers, but they help build cities. They've got a little bit of idea of how supports work on stuff. If they're going to try to take a, smash a castle down, you got to know how to do that, right? So, you're looking at this they're like, okay, something has happened again. No footprints. Nothing living. Animals. There's deer running around and rabbits all over the place. So it's not like something's killing everything alive and butterflies and birds and all that stuff. It's just there's no humans. And the fields are all overgrown. Um, and they're able to snag, like I said, some different foods. Berries, strawberries, whatever food crops. They're coming, Wheat, if they wanted wheat. They don't take wheat. They really don't have the supplies to get wheat. But there's wheat if they wanted wheat. All the stuff you'd expect to find in a community. People growing different things. And as they travel, they're starting to see them a little bit more often. It's the third one that they come across is the first time they find something a little bit different. They're looking around, and they've been very careful, but I don't care how careful and experienced you are. After weeks and weeks of no trouble, your guard's down a little bit. You know, just a little bit. And while Mercy and Darsh are looking around some of the... Or Mercy and Darsh are looking around. Artemis and Dandy are picking some of the food from one of the overgrown fields nearby. Um, there's some old tomato plants in there. There's tons of weeds taller than their heads, but there's all these vines, and they're like, ah, tomatoes, yeah, let's get some of these. And uh, the season they're in now, they're uh, almost ripe, but they can fry them up over the fire and maybe get some nice, delicious fried green tomatoes. It's a southern thing. It's one of the few southern foods I like. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> but... You know, they're picking some stuff. And as they're going through the field, they're not but 30, 40 feet away from Darsh and Mercy, but they kind of separate as they're picking the fruits. And it's, there's a couple different things growing in there. Maybe they find a small watermelon or some squash or whatever the case is. And they just kind of separate a little bit. And Artemis is walking through the tall grass. And again, she's short, remember? They're all short except for Darsh. And as she's walking through the weeds, she bends down, she's picking up at this, and she turns... And finds herself face to face with a monstrosity. She screams, caught aware, stumbles backwards, trips over a pumpkin, lands in the soft dirt, making her robes slightly dirty on the booty. 
it only takes seconds for everyone else to be there. Dar specifically, because he kicked his boots in and just shot right into the crops. So Darcy's boots right in there. Weapons drawn. And Darcy sees the thing. It only takes a couple seconds and he puts his weapon down. And he turns and goes, I think that's a scarecrow. Danny goes, looks like a scarecrow. He's like, I know, I already said that. And he helps Artemis up and he looks at it and he kind of hits it with his, he's got a little gauntlet, and knocks it, like, you know, not big metal gauntlets. That's big heavy armor and stuff. That's usually in the chest of holding. That's not their travel gear. We still got something. He knocks on it. It's definitely metal and it's hollow. The thing itself almost looks like a, a metal barrel with, you know, almost like arm and leg on it. And stuff. One arm obviously fell off. There was a head connected to it, but it's mostly fallen down. And he's just knocking on it and the thing breaks. His hand goes right through it. It's so old. Thought it was metal, but it just rusted. And as he does inside, it's mostly smells a little funky, but it's mostly just hollow. There's nothing in there. Probably some vegetable, maybe some hay or something that was used to stuff it or help hold it together. And he's like, Yeah, this thing's odd looking scarecrow, but I mean it's in the middle of the field. It's standing on its own, which is nice. There's no sticks holding it up, so they built their scarecrows to not fall over. It's fine. You can see it's got, it looks like a, it probably had some type of hat thing on it. It would have wilted away. There's, it looks like there's spots where there might have been hay in it, but that would have all wilted away over time. So it's really just the shell, because for all we know, there was clothing wrapped around it and such, and it was made to look like a, a you know, bugbear or a hobgoblin or something to scare away criminals from taking their things. And that's what it looks like, but what that means to them more than anything else is that Whoever lived here was building something to frighten away something else. Now, does the little thing they found in the field look like something that would scare away something big enough to do damage to these buildings? No. No, it does not. And so they're like, okay, so whatever these were meant to scare away, which could have been just birds and such, as scarecrows are for, might not be connected specifically with the big thing, but, you know, Still something to, something to be aware of. They continue traveling on. Uh, again, as they continue, same MO. Uh, at some point, they even come across the bones of large animals. Probably deer. Cows, especially. Um, and again, the skeletons are always somewhat apart. Um, and there's a, it's easy to see the bones that the beast was likely cut in half. Probably with a single blow. And that's not easy. Darcy's like, I'm a strong dude. I could not cut a cow in half. In one hit. Maybe three. Two if I'm angry at the cow. But never in one hit. It's never possible. If it took my pie. Maybe. And they laugh. These are the type of jokes that they make. Darcy, Darcy makes jokes about his own pie thing. He gets a laugh out of the girls. He likes to be cheerful. But they even find the bones were separate enough where they can find that same type of thing. Um, and a couple more of those scary crow things in the fields. Always in the fields where you'd expect them. Um, and they're all falling apart. They're not walking around. Again, they're way too small to be doing the damage. In no way do I want you to think the little things. Those are just signs that they were trying to scare away something else. These little things were not doing the damage that was seen. Nowhere near it. Uh, let's see. So... They continue traveling on. Now, this happens over several days. They're stopping at each one of these farms and looking around. 
anything that might tell them what's going on to the area. Doesn't matter how long ago it was. If something up here was doing damage, yeah, Mercy's got to worry it might one day make its way down to Serenity. So they got to take some looks, make sure that everything's all right. Plus their characters. It's D&D. &D. What are you going to do, right? So, the most surprising discovery they make is actually not on one of the abandoned farmsteads. They're actually going through a field, an open relative field at this point. Not a farm field, just a regular grassy field. The grass, and they can see that there's some type of rock thing in the distance. Oddly shaped. And they're like, okay. They approach it quietly. They get closer to it and are kind of horrified by what they find. Dandy sneaks up first. Number one, to see if it's awake. But it's not. Once she's close enough to verify what she thought was going on, she's able to call in the rest of them. The corpse that they have here now at this point also very, very old and wasted away. The only reason there's any part of it left at this point was clearly due to its size. Because lying on the ground is the body of a giant. Not far away, which looked to be appeared just be an old tree that had fallen over, that knowing that this is a giant, they're able to dictate that was a club. That was his big monk stick. And there is a dead giant laying on the ground. Now, because of the decay and such, and it's still stinky. Been picked away by animals and stuff, you can imagine. It's, it's very gross. All the fluids that haven't decomposed have already ran into the earth. There's no blood inside. It's, it's very old. This body's been dead for decades. Surprising, it hasn't decayed more than it has, to be honest. But they aren't able to tell what type of giant. It only had one head, so they know it's not a two-headed giant. Giants can range in size, but it's hard to tell how tall this giant is for two reasons. One, it's laying down and it's dead. It's decomposed. It's hard to know how big it totally was. And the second reason is the bottom half of the giant is about 10 feet away. Even though the body at both edges have collapsed, this beast was split asunder into two halves. Whatever giant this was, something either ripped it or cut it in half. You can't tell if it's a clean cut or not. Because it's a body, right? Things would have decayed. And, the bones, maybe a little bit. There's still chunky meat on those. But definitely, it's been broken in half. Now, there's no giant bites out of it. That would be their first thing if it was a predator. Could have been a dragon. Dragon could have done that to a giant. Would have been a decent fight. But a dragon could have flown down and maybe used a spell or something like that to cut it in half. But you'd think if a dragon was going to go through that, it would have eaten some of it. Good dragons don't do that for the fun of it. Evil dragons do it for the nourishment. And if that had been a dragon who did that to the cows they found that were split in half, the bones wouldn't have been there. A dragon would have eaten the whole thing whole. Pooped them out later. I mean, there, there wouldn't be half of No dragon's going to kill half a cow and just leave it there. Both halves. Just leave them there. So I don't think it was a dragon, but it's like, okay, something big enough to take down a giant. That's a new concern. So, they begin to travel further. And 
They travel for another day. Now, obviously, at this point, they're like three and a half weeks gone. They've been traveling across this countryside for several days. Granted, they're not making time like they normally do because they keep stopping to search things. But finally, near the end of the next day, at this point, they've passed by several homes. They've stopped searching them all because as they've been traveling, the homes have becoming more and more common. It's almost like they're getting closer to town. You know what I mean? The houses that are furthest apart are the furthest away, and as you get closer to town, they get more and more and more, and more busy. But they're still farmsteads. They're not like town-type things. But ahead in the distance, they saw a shimmering light. I'm just kidding. I was just teasing about that part. Ahead in the distance, they can see, as the sun's going down, the silhouette of what looks like some type of castle or small keep. More tower-shaped, but uh, kind of castle-y. Um, but they don't see any lights coming from it. Granted, the sun's just starting to go down. But you'd expect to see some lights if someone was there. Someone would be lighting it up. But it's a little bit too far away to see a lot of the details. They're like, well, if that is the center of area, if anything, we might find someone there. Let's travel that direction. And the place itself isn't maybe 30, 40 minutes away. It's off in the distance. It's a pretty decent-sized place up on a bit of a hill. There's some forest to the sides, some big trees over there, and then that, and there's some little farmsteads with overgrown. And most of the grass here, there's no roads. There are probably some old roads, but most of it's overgrown uh, knee-deep <laughs> or chest-deep, depending on how tall you are. But their horses were able to go through it. A lot of the trees had been cleared out for farmland. Obviously, there's going to be some that have grown back since then, but there's still a lot of open land. And they're making their way towards As they approach the keep, even from a distance, they can tell it too looks like it's been abandoned. Uh, there are no banners flying there. At this point, it's starting to get dark now. doesn't appear that there's any lights coming on inside. Um, they can't see it, any type of doorway. Uh, imagine, if you will, the hill comes up, and it comes down almost like a tower, but then it's a big, almost like a the castle piece on a chessboard if that makes sense. Got a little castle tower. Then when it gets to the bottom, it thickens up, and so it's like more of a donut base with a with a cone on top, if that makes I'm describing this badly, but in my head I'm seeing the castle piece of a chessboard. Um, the bottom not being perfectly round, just whatever. They're making their way towards it. It was Artemis that sees it first. Of the four of them, you know, Dandy's the better of the scout. Artemis's eyes and vision are that of the elves, and she can see farther better, especially in infravision. Uh, as the sun's going down, her eyes adjust easier and quicker, so she's able to see it first. And even from the distance, as the sun's kind of hitting it, she sees what looks like a sheen, a reflection of light, kind of around it, almost like a glass around the tower. If you were to watch the old uh, Beauty and the Beast cartoon, the floating rose in the middle, you know what I mean? It's got that glass dome that sits on a stand. It kind of has that, like a dome over it, but it doesn't look glass. It's like a pinkish sheen, and it kind of wobbles, almost like liquid, but just very, very faint in the air. 
and she's about to say something, pointed out to her friends, when over the sounds of their horses walking, both she and Dandy hear a noise at the same time. Dandy calls out, they all stop their horse, and they're like, what is it? She's like, you know, kind of put her ear. Everybody gets quiet while they listen. And they can hear a very strange noise. I say strange because I can't think of anything that sounds like it. Dandy's like, it kind of sounds like something I heard once, but I can't remember where. And they're all thinking real hard. But the sound's getting louder, and then they can finally realize it's coming from the east, the direction of the woods over there. The sun is still going down relatively quickly. It is fall in this area. So as the sun is going down, it's going by pretty quickly. And almost as the sun falls behind the towers, giving it a nice little silhouette, they finally see what's making the noise. It's massive. And it gets louder and louder. And they're starting to move away from it even before they can see it. But it's coming kind of slightly behind them, slightly to the west. And it sounds like footsteps. Huge, huge footsteps. But the footsteps also sound like metal on metal. Like someone is banging a hammer against an anvil. So it's like something huge was walking with metal shoes on something metal. To give you an idea of the sound. Followed by a bunch of smaller machine metal-on-metal noises. And then another big metal-on-metal noise getting louder and louder. They heard it long before they saw it. But when they did see it, they had no idea what it was. The thing stands easily 40 feet tall. Huge. And even though they don't know what it is, they recognize it. Because they saw much smaller versions of it in the middle of all of the different fields that they came across. This one, though, much larger and moving. Its metal legs the plates on them cranking and hitting each other as it walks relatively slowly. Where its hands should be, one hand has a huge scythe for like reaping of crops, and the other one has a huge axe for the felling of lumber. And even though the thing looks like it's rusted in some spots, maybe even decayed a little in the metal and such, the red glowing of where its eyes should be still nice and bright, and it's looking right at them. And starts coming directly their way. Immediately, they turn their horses and begin to run, the tower being the closest thing anywhere near them. But as fast as they're going, the creature's actually going faster. It's huge, long legs, giant strides. It's only slowly catching up, because they're on horses. Horses are still fast, right? But it's moving with great speed, and they're not sure if they're going to make it in time. 
But as they get closer, they can see the pink sheen that surrounds the tower. <clears throat> and can see that now, Artemis, who sees it most, can see that it's not physical, it's more magical. It's some type of wall or spell. Whether or not it'll hurt them or help them, she doesn't know. But things like that are usually meant to keep things out. And if it doesn't, whoever's in that castle doesn't let them in or through that, she doesn't know if they're going to be able to fight this thing. But the best they can do is race to the tower as quickly as they can and hope that whoever's inside will raise the shield and let them in. Now, whether or not that happens, we'll find out next week, next time we play, because that's where we're going to stop for today. Um, so as I said, episodes are going to be between two and two and a half hours. Um, I'm making them just a little bit shorter as well. Just makes it a little bit easier for the folks who listen to the audio podcast um, version of this. Um, having a weekly podcast of two and a half to four hours uh, is a lot for people to listen to every week. So every other week, uh, with two to two hours, two to two and a half hours, uh, it'll be a lot easier for people to catch up and hopefully enjoy it as we're you know, to the point where they can watch the live streams as well. But I would like to thank you all for coming today. That's where we're going to end today's story. Uh, if you had a good time, please remember to click like. That would be awesome if you would. If you're new here, please be sure to hit subscribe uh, and make sure you follow the channel. Come on and hang out with us. Um, I also stream over on Twitch most days. You can find me over there at only Dra at only Draven Gaming. That's all one word. <clears throat> no underscore, no space, no line. It's only Draven Gaming. I'm over there, and I stream here Thursdays and Sunday nights on YouTube. Uh, if you listen to the audio podcast, it would be awesome if you'd mind giving us five stars or a like or a review or whatever it is on Spotify or iTunes you're listening to. Uh, it would be phenomenal if you wouldn't mind. That helps get it in front of the eyes of even more people. But whether you're listening it today, tomorrow, or forever from now, I appreciate you listening to my story. And I appreciate it if you click like, follow, and all that stuff. But if you have any questions about Merged Worlds or any of the D&D stuff I talk about, uh, you can reach us on our Discord channel. Um, <clears throat> I do mostly gaming content, but there's some uh, threads there specifically designed for Merged Worlds. Uh, you can get there by going to my website, onlydraven.com. There's a button at the top of the homepage. Click on that. Take you right in. We would love to have you in our Discord. It's open to everyone. Come on in, hit me up with questions. I love chatting about it. While you're there, you'll find links to my streaming schedule, all my socials, the ODG store, where you can get cool ODG merch, including Merged Worlds, shirt stickers, hats, and things of that nature. A lot of cool stuff on the website. I recommend checking it out. Once again, thank you all so very much for giving me the opportunity to tell my story. You all know how important it is to me and how big of a part of my life it is getting to share this next generation of tale is a complete delight. And I thank you all for listening and for your feedback. Uh, I appreciate how much you guys have been enjoying it as well. Okay? Well, I'm going to call this one a day. Thank you all. We'll be back two Thursdays from now. So two weeks from now will be the next Merged Worlds. But smack in the middle of that, you're going to get your first, world, first Merged Worlds Behind the Dice video. I really hope I can get some feedback from you on that. See what you like and what you'd like to see more of in the future. All right? Thank you all for coming. You have yourselves a wonderful day.